The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. At this time, um, we are, we'll move on to our next session called Support Groups, Sharing Ideas and Resources to Build a Stronger Peer Community. And to present um, at, during this session, we have Marcy Grabois, who is an LSW ACSW and Associated Professor at Salis University. Um, she's also the Coordinator of Social Services at William Feinblum um, Vision, Re- Vision Rehabilitation Center, which is the INS- the, and the, the I Institute of Salis University. Um, next, we have um, on this this during this for this panel discussion, we have Jeanette Schmoyer, our own Jeanette Schmoyer, who is um, a PCB peer mentor and support group leader in her own right. And not last, but certainly not least, we have Julian Lieberman, who is our vision loss resource team leader, and she is also a certified low vision therapist. Um, so, without further ado. Um, let's get this underway. The structure of this um, session is um, that we're going to be uh, talking about the purposes of um, a support group. And these are two different types of support groups. Uh, both of them have great value and both of them come from a little bit, a slightly different perspective. But the bottom line is, um, is that people are getting help. Um, and that's the good point. And also, we're going to hopefully get some ideas on how perhaps you could uh, start a support group, either within your uh, office or facility, or also with your own um, peer group that you're living with, a residential facility, or just friends or chapters. So that was our our thought in going into this. Um, I wanted to add a little bit of uh, additions to uh, some of the bios that, um, that were read by Marianne. Um, Marcy has been with uh, the Feinblum Low Vision Center for several years. Many people have um, met her along the line. If you've ever been a patient there, it is um, in the East Oak Lane section of Philadelphia. Um, It's a beautiful facility and got beautiful people working there. And Marcy is one of the best (laughs) representatives of that. And I can say that quite honestly. Um, I also had the great fortune um, of having her as an instructor when I was uh, taking my graduate um, classes at Salus. Uh, I am a proud alum of Salus University. I'm a certified low vision therapist um, as a result, and also a certified assistive technology instructional specialist. And of this summer, I was an adjunct faculty member, which was quite um, pleasurable for me. I really enjoyed that experience. So I want to especially, um, you know, highlight that Marcy has come a long way uh, in this area and serving many different people in many different uh, approaches, including instructing the uh, future professionals in the field and continues to do so. Jeanette um, has her, uh, her educational background is that she's an, uh, our best English teacher I think you can ever find. Uh, she taught senior high school for many years. She got very involved after she retired with her church community um, and then uh, now is also very active uh, as the leader of the support group for persons with vision loss at the Peter Becker Homes, where she is a very proud resident. 
And um, they have different approaches, each one of these support groups. And so I'm going to switch over to my questions and get started, unless the two ladies want to add something else to their commentary that I just read. Well, hearing none, then we'll start off. Okay, Marcy, where does your group meet? And how uh, can you describe how the settings may make a difference uh, for your group? Okay, well, first, I want to thank you for your beautiful introduction. (laughs) Also want to add that Julianne has been a guest speaker in my support group several <laughs> <laughs> times. So she's been a wonderful um, resource and asset. So my group um, right now is meeting through a teleconference line. Uh, we had to pivot very quickly in March of 2020, as most people did in their lives, Um, to find a different platform for us to get together because, like everybody else, we were shut down for a period of time. And um, we decided that a teleconference line would be good because it really only required a phone, didn't require any technology, and um, not everybody in our group, you know, has the technology that they would need in order to do it through a computer. So um, prior to 2020, uh, in March, we, we met in the I Institute. Um, our building has gone through a number of renovations over the years. So rooms that were available originally became unavailable. So we were kind of like the nomads of, of the I Institute, so to speak. Um, but we had just found this really perfect room. It, had, it was the pediatric waiting room and the chief of our pediatric department had very generously um, allowed us to use that room uh, once a month for our meetings um, where we could, you know, have privacy and uh, flexibility with the way we set the room up. And um, so it it was uh, really something that we were looking forward to using. We only got a chance to use it twice and then the pandemic hit. So, but it did allow us um, privacy and, like I said, um, allowed us to um, kind of reconfigure the space inside so that we could, um, you know, um, hear each other and see each other to the best of our uh, abilities. And it was located very close to the lobby (laughs) front door, which is always a good thing when you're meeting in a building and people have rides coming you know, all the logistics that you have to think about uh, when you're working uh, with a group. So that's kind of where my group was and where it is currently. We are looking forward to getting back uh, face-to-face. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, um, but um, our goal is to get off the phone and get back into the room with each other. Did you find that there were uh, more or less people participating uh, in that phone platform as opposed to in person? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Initially, more people um, participated, um, which I guess you would expect uh, considering that, you know, transportation is sometimes a roadblock uh, to getting to the I-Institute. So I think in the beginning, um, we did have a larger number And in the beginning um, of the pandemic, when we shifted to the phone line, people were really just trying to find their way just to any connections they could make. Everybody was feeling 
isolated and stuck at home. And so the phone line really provided a great opportunity for people to stay connected. And so, yes, we did have um, a larger number. I was very worried about how logistically a phone line would work and and how to manage that when I couldn't see people. Um, But it, it really worked nicely as people have adjusted and started to become a little more active, um, our numbers have trended down. Um, so now we might get anywhere from, you know, three to 10 people where in the beginning we were probably closer to 10 to 15 people, uh, joining in. Um, so that's kind of where we're at at this point. I don't know. I think we'll probably our numbers will go up as when we come back, because I think people will be looking for any opportunity to get out of the house and be together. Um, but, um, we started off high and we've trended down a little bit. I think that's pretty consistent with a lot of the telephone, uh, conference settings. So I'll take that with good measure. Um, Jeanette, I'm going to turn over to you. Um, where, and, uh, how often does your group meet? I know you were there. (laughs) Jeanette, are you still with us? Are you there now? There she is. Okay. <laughs> I forgot about unmuting. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, did you hear the question? Yes. Okay, good. And, and I started to say thank you to Lynn <laughs> for including me in this presentation. And uh, our group also has had Julianne come and speak um, to our group. Um, we try to have a, a wide variety of presenters. Um, We meet, uh, let me first say that I live in a retirement community, uh, so it's a large community and includes uh, independent living, personal care, and skill care. Uh, We have a large community room in the building where I live, which is all independent living, and it's a large uh, space, so we can be very flexible in our seating. We can have all the chairs facing forward for a presenter and a formal presentation. Uh, We can have those chairs moved into a circle, which we have occasionally done and had our own kind of discussions and actually brought in a counselor from our uh, local association uh, for the blind when they had a counselor there and had the counselor meet with our group and and, uh, answer questions and guide the group. Uh, There is also a movie screen at the front. And so we have on occasion shown audio described movies for the group. And that was a way to educate them uh, about that uh, possibility out in the community. So that that is within the residence. So they don't really have a transportation issue, as Marcy described a little bit earlier. So that that's good to hear as a that's correct. Yeah, that's a question uh, then um, following up straight with you, Jeanette. Um, What made you think about starting a a support support group for persons with vision loss? What triggered your interest in doing this? (laughs) We moved into this community in uh, February, actually on Valentine's Day of 2008. (laughs) And because I I have a, a... eye condition that started in high school, and it's uh, called photophobic, which simply means that the brighter it is, the less I see. (laughs) Um, And so I have worn sunglasses indoors um, since 10th grade, 
bright classrooms, bright grocery stores, any room with a bright light. Uh, I have uh, what I call my indoor sunglasses. Um, and then later in 1980, I acquired um, the Noor uh, very dark sunglasses uh, for outdoors. But anyway, we when we moved in here, I was wearing sunglasses to move around in here. And within those first few months after we moved in, so many people approached me, oh, I guess you have something wrong with your eyes. And then they tell me about what they were experiencing. And I'd realized that they didn't know anything about what was out there to help, not even an association for the blind. Um, sometimes that name, blind, uh, is a stumbling block because, well, I'm not blind. I just am having some trouble seeing. And um, so within four months, by May of 2008, I was able to hold my first um, low vision support group meeting here. Um, I, you want me to go on um, how it got started to... to um, how we worked at it? Yeah, um, if you can. And then, Marcy, we're going to flip this over to you to talk about the background and history of your group. So, Jeanette, what did you need to know when you were starting this group? What if, Were there any, uh, again, barriers or um, requirements for you to be able to use that community room, for example? Yes. yes. Um, when we moved in here, there were no, none, resident-led activities. Wow. They were all staff-led. And so when I proposed to our social worker that I would be willing and eager to run a support group, um, there was some hesitancy. So the social worker talked to our CEO, and she had concerns because she saw it as a medical services activity. Mm. And she said a nurse would have to attend all of those meetings. And I assured her that I don't make any medical diagnoses mm. or uh, even recommend any particular doctors and assured her that I had been speaking on behalf of low vision uh, for many, many years. I had been part of the speakers bureau at the association for the blind um, back in my community where I had lived before moving here. And um, they did assign a nurse to come to our meetings. We met monthly and the nurse came to the first three monthly meetings and went back to the CEO and said, I don't have to attend there. Uh, so that, that was the first um, resident-led activity. And um, it really felt good to be trusted with uh, um, that activity, considering that it was the very first resident-run activity here. That's really cool. Marcy, uh, what, give me a little bit of background of how your group started and why. Right. So um, I can really appreciate what Jeanette went through. Um, my, my group started a little bit differently, Um my background is in social work. I have a master's in social work. And many years ago, I would supervise uh, graduate students who needed to do field placements. And so um, one year I had a student and as part of her uh, experience, she wanted to start a group. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, we don't have any groups. 
and it would be a nice addition to the services that we had uh, to offer. And um, so we sat together and we talked about, you know, what, what components of our patient population, you know, might be interested, might benefit from kind of coming together and meeting each other. And so initially we came up with parents of children that have vision issues and older adults, uh, which made up a very large part of our patient population. Um, we did start a parent group. We won't go into that, but that was only for a few months. And it was, it was a good group, but we had some missteps um, that um, I think kind of got in the way of that group continuing. Um, but we learned from it. The older adult group that we started um, really took off tremendously. Uh, we were hearing from a lot of the patients that we were working with through our low vision service that um, they felt like they didn't have anybody to talk to about what was going on in their lives. Uh, their families didn't understand. Their friends didn't understand. And they, they felt pretty alone with the experience of, of vision loss. And so we thought, wow, this would be a really great um, way to bring people together and have them be able to talk to each other. So in February of her placement, um, we had our initial meeting and um, we had a very, very large turnout. We had like 25 people, which we really were not expecting. And the goal was we were going to meet until she was finished. And that was in May. And so um, this was never intended to be an ongoing um, support group. But when May came and we started talking about ending, the group had no, um, no intention of stopping. So um, she left and I inherited the uh, facilitation. And uh, we have been going very strong uh, since there. I do want to say it was an older adult support group uh, at the time because we were geared towards and we never really defined, we didn't ever have a number where you said, oh, you're too young uh, to belong. But, you know, most of the people in the group were retired. They were in their 70s and 80s. Um, the group is still called the older adult group, but it's really open to anybody that of any age that um, is interested in just connecting with other people with um, a shared um, problem or concern. So um, that's where my group came from. I just want to add to what, Julianne, you had um, mentioned and also um, to Jeanette that um, there's really no magic about starting a support group. You don't need any special training. You know, you just need to have fairly good people skills and be a good listener and be able to work with logistics. Um, but there's, there's no like magical, you know, course or degree that you need to have um, to, to start a group. And that's really one of the points that I wanted to make in, in our, you know, presentation today in encouraging people, um, you know, to think about um, starting a group if they see the need for one. Yeah, thank you, uh, Marcy. That's a very good point um, that, again, further uh, illustrates what I was saying earlier about if your chapter would like to do something like this, in particular for persons that are new to vision loss, um, they can also contact the Vision Loss Resource Team at PCB, and we can also, you know, perhaps do some support um, in helping them get their uh, group started as well. So uh, that's a really good point. Uh, Marcy already mentioned that sh her group meets monthly. Uh, Jeanette, how often does your group meet? 
Well, we started out monthly back in 2008. Um, and after, I don't know, four or five years, maybe, we, we discovered that the numbers were down in July and August because people were vacationing, traveling. And also because we were meeting the fourth Monday of each month, it fell on the week of Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we ended up doing it eight months a year, skipping those two months in the summer and those two months uh, for the uh, holidays. But as time went on, those people who were coming more to kind of um, just kind of learn basics or be curious or um, just get some background to things, it, it sort of petered down to the people who were most needy for that kind of information, um, either because they had lost considerable vision or they were losing vision uh, in a way that, that was significantly um, noticeable, uh, not necessarily really rapid, but that they could notice it kept changing. And, and so um, we ended up meeting quarterly. And of course, now through the pandemic, I had a meeting scheduled in April of 2020, and that was Kristen Smedley. She was going to come in person, but she also has a TED Talk. And so when she wasn't allowed to come in person in April of 2020, we uh, showed her TED Talk on our, uh, um, the community has a channel on the TV. And so we were able to show her TED Talk uh, on the TV. And now I have one scheduled for September and I have my fingers crossed, um, uh, September 21st. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that one's going to happen. That's a really good pivot that you illustrate because that's one of the, the beauties um, and maybe one of the challenges of keeping a support group running uh, is that there are times things come into uh, our life experience where we're going to have to make a, a pivot. And that is a perfect example of how you can pivot, uh, in this case, with using the TV channel. I think that was absolutely a brilliant idea. Um, and hopefully uh, September's meeting will be successful too. Um, my next question was going to be uh, really about the numbers, but we pretty much already talked about that, that initially you had a, a greater attendance, both groups, and then it uh, gradually got down to some of the core people that were probably most needy, whether they needed just the support of a person um, who had vision loss uh, for them to um, as my sister said, oh, I hate when they get together and just complain. No, it's actually a good opportunity for people to share what their solutions were to some of these problems that other people are experiencing. Um, I have a tendency to say to various groups of people, I've learned more, pe more things from blind people than I ever learned in rehab. Sorry, Marcy. <laughs> but it's true. Um, I, again, that personal experience with peers that share in a support group. And I'm sure Marcy can attest the same thing that there's, I never thought about doing it that way. And that seems to be, you know, what can, can happen as long as the, you know, again, the, the uh, technique or the access that they're providing is safe. Their, you know, alternatives are great. And that's how we learn from each other on this. I, yeah, okay. I, I kind of jumped ahead. So I apologize for that. No, it's good. <laughs> I just want to add one more thing. Um, I think I did say at that very first meeting, we had 48 people. Right. Um, now, 
through this pandemic, we had a lot leave. Our building was is only 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so a lot of the people who moved in 16 years ago, you know, continued to live here up until the last five years or so. Um, but as we lost a lot of people, particularly in these last two years, we've had a lot of new move-ins. So I'm expecting that the group will get bigger again. But we were down to to what to 12 to 15 or so. Right, right. And and again, that is a natural attrition. Right. Uh, the fact that you've got a new influx of people that, uh, and likewise, I'm sure with Marcy that, you know, I hate to say this, but vision loss hasn't gone away. And so there's always going to be new patients uh, that would benefit from having a, uh, the experience in a support group um, that, you know, would be involved in your group as well. Uh, again, uh, let, let me start with Marcy here on this topic. What would you think would be the most beneficial reason why someone would join your group? Wow. That's, it's hard to come up with one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um just the shared experience, getting to talk with other people um, who either are experiencing the same thing or who have experienced um, what what the individual is going through uh, is very powerful, and um, you know that that sparks a lot of referrals for our patients when you know we we hear things you know that patients are saying when they talk about feeling, you know, alone or isolated or not understood um, by family and friends, um, you know, that's when we think about, well, gee, there are, there are other people out there that, you know, that really will understand, um, you know, what you're going through because they've lived it or are living it. And um, so I think that's really the greatest motivator. Um, mm-hmm. We're thinking about connecting people. Um, and I just want to um, also um, say, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, I'm learning <laughs> something new. You know, the, I learn something new when my group meets. I learn something new every time we meet from mm-hmm. in the group, whether it's a resource, um, a service, a strategy something, um, you know, and so I think that's a big part of it as well. It's an incidental um, part of it, but, um, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, being in a a collective place and, you know, being able to talk about whatever comes to mind. And it's not always about vision. Mm -hmm. It can be other things as well. It, It doesn't have to just be about visual impairment. You know, people talk about all, all different topics, whatever, you know, is on their mind for that particular day. Thank you. Um, Jeanette, well, do you, if I pose the same question, I know your group's a little bit different in the way it's, um, you know, you do more with speakers and presentations and activities. Um, what would you think would be the biggest benefit for somebody in your group um, to join your group? Well, as I said, when people came to me and, talked about their vision issues. And I realized that they just had no idea what was out there. That was the basis for my starting the group. And yes, our approach is very different uh, from the group that Marcy's in. Uh, I do have mostly professional speakers come in. Uh, I want my group to know about orientation and mobility. I want them to know about 
we're so fortunate to have a low vision optometrist uh, here in the area um, who, who, unlike the normal eye doctor where you go in and you might get five or 10 minutes of his time, um, this low vision optometrist who specializes in low vision will spend 45 minutes to an hour with a patient just discovering where their uh, remaining vision is and how best to use that remaining vision. Um, I will have um, ophthalmologists come in and speak. Uh, That draws a large crowd because usually they have a specialty. So they'll come in to talk about macular degeneration or another one might come in to talk about glaucoma uh, and so on. Uh, I also want them to know about the Association to the Blind in the area, about vendors who uh, sell the products, the devices that we talk about, and um, about transportation options. Um, So we we have a presentation by the local paratransit, and our community has volunteer resident drivers. Uh, We talk about Uber and those kinds of choices. Uh, so I want them to know about a, a, a large, uh, a wide variety of uh, things that are available to them. Uh, we do occasionally have uh, a group where we, uh, in PCB, we're calling us peers, where we peers, um, the residents here who have low vision, do come together. Uh, sometimes uh, once they have acquired uh, equipment and, and things that they've learned about here, then I have them present and they might talk about a laptop with voice uh, or, or a um, tablet uh, or a handheld magnifier uh, that they've discovered that works w- uh, well for them. Um, talk about book readers and smartphones. Uh, so there are times when um, it's not professionals presenting uh, but but I might do a demonstration and, and be the presenter, uh, or there have been times when I will call residents to come and speak who uh, are using um, devices that they've learned about through the Low Vision Support Group and are finding very beneficial for themselves. I have to, I'm smiling as, I, as you're telling this, uh, Jeanette, because this is really... Um, if you're going from a standpoint of the approaches that you take is that uh, you take a very um, educational teacher type of approach and Marcy goes with the the social work um, listening approach. Um, And again, both are extremely effective. Uh, The bottom line is the people are getting the information that they need, whether it come in a different style of presentation um, or exchange among peers uh, I, I, this is brilliant. And, and that's really what I was hoping to compare with this particular presentation. Both are very valuable and both approaches work very well in that particular setting. And, you know, this is an awesome example of that. So I'm going to move now really to the nitty gritty. Um, and hopefully we can run through this because you kind of discussed some of this uh, also already, too. So I'm going to go through some quick Quick questions, um, and then we can hopefully open it up to the audience. Um, so, what is your, uh, you know, responsibilities, Marcy, as the leader, has in your view, as a leader of the support group? Um, so, I really let the group run itself. Um, 
I call people to remind them, make sure that they have the 800 number and the access code. Um, and then we start off, our ritual has always been when we start off the meeting is that we go around the room and everybody just introduces themselves and anything they want to tell the group to update um, on what's happened since the last time we met. So we still do that um, on the phone. I, I kind of keep track of who's there and who came on first. And we kind of go around the virtual uh, teleconference room and, and do that. Um, I, I just want to also say that um, we have speakers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my group loves speakers. <laughs> I'd rather have a speaker than, than just an open discussion, but we don't always have a speaker. And we have many of the same professionals that uh, Jeanette talked about. I'm, I'm very sure. fortunate to be located, you know, in a facility that has orientation and mobility and vision rehab specialists. And, you know, we get people from the community and our low vision doctors come and talk. So I, I listen to common themes that are being talked about when we have our open discussion to see what people seem to be the most interested in learning more about. Um, but to answer your question, I, I'm not very directive. Um, I, if there's a lull in the conversation, I may, you know, uh, jump in and um, throw out a question or ask somebody to say more about something. Um, but I really let the group do their own thing and just talk to each other. Um, so it, it's, it's not very, um, um, you know, structured uh, in a way where, you know, I'm the teacher, the facilitator, and they are the, the participants that have to respond to me. I really want to encourage them to respond to each other. Okay, good. Thank you. Jeanette, what, what, how would you uh, describe your role as the uh, facilitator of this group? Well, for me, most of it is the background stuff. Make sure that the room is reserved, uh, even mm-hmm. though it's held monthly. I have to check and be sure somebody hasn't mm-hmm. jumped in there. Say, hey, wait a minute. I have this for every month. Um, get the notices out. Um, I have um, the social worker come and take attendance uh, so that if I do have someone new show up, they get on my list. Um, depending on what's happening, we will flyer the whole community. Uh, but in general, the notices go out to those who have attended at least once and shown some interest. Um, so that we have those monthly notices of the meetings uh, or quarterly, uh, depending on you know what, what stage we were at. Um, I also have to inform our maintenance men uh, how I want or need the room set up, whether we have the formal presenter up front, whether we have vendors who need tables. Um, Some of them may need uh, to be an electrical outlet in order to to plug in uh, items that they want to demonstrate. And then once it's the day of the meeting, if it is a presenter like that, basically uh, it's just my job to introduce the speaker, introduce the vendors, Uh, They each have a turn to speak and talk about what they're there for. Um, The the presenter, the main presenter, usually has the majority of the time, maybe up to 45 minutes. 
and uh, and then say their vendors that are there. They each have five to ten minutes to talk about what they have to offer, uh, and then everyone has time to go up and uh, talk to all of those presenters. Sometimes I also have a table. Uh, which I will talk about and have um, maybe some of the low-tech stuff that I use, or even if I don't use it, that I know about, writing guides or uh, the bold pens or things like that, I will have on display that uh, are not presented by uh, those that I've engaged to come and and present. Okay, that's great. So you you do a lot of the um, setup and the background work um, prior to the, the group, And um, which leads me to my next question, Jeanette, has there ever been a time that you can think of where um, there, and I know this sounds really out of sorts, but, um, you know, small groups, when they get together or even large groups, uh, everyone comes with a different opinion. Um, And uh, would there be, do you have any times where you had to either, stop a dispute, for example, or uh, kind of corral some of the behavior among the group. And I know from personal experience, uh, when I was uh, presenting at a support group, not, not neither one of these uh, support groups, but another one where someone else came in and introduced himself and start um, spouting all kinds of stuff that were not necessarily um, appropriate, shall we say. Uh, and fortunately, the moderator did uh, then put a stop to that. And so um, we graciously uh, thanked him for uh, his opinion, but we asked him if he could hold it for uh, for another venue. <laughs> so is there any time, Jeanette, that you've ever encountered that? And hopefully not. Um, and if so, could he describe it? Um, because... Um... Now, it's not that only residents are invited to the group because we do invite anyone from outside in the community to come. Mostly when that happens, it has been, for example, the the daughter or son of someone who lives here, maybe someone in personal care who isn't able to come over themselves to the meeting because they would be from a different building. Um, But no, I have never encountered that kind of difficulty. Now, that's largely because most of my uh, meetings involve a formal presenter. Mm-hmm. Um, we rarely have, I shouldn't say rarely, but it, it's, it's only occasionally that we have a circle of people or, or you know, that kind of thing uh, where everybody is sharing. But even when we've had that, I have never t- encountered that. How about you, Marcy? Um, well, fortunately... Um, not too frequently has that happened. Um, when there are, and there can be strong opinions about, like we, we talk about all different kinds of things. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, there were lots of conversations that came up, you know, that were tinged with a little bit of politics and, you know, you know, different, um, life experiences and, and opinions. Um, I I basically just, hung back and um, just kind of let people work out their differences. I would have jumped in um, if I felt it was not going in a good direction. But for the most part, people in my group are very respectful of difference. Um, I did have years ago when we, you know, we were meeting face to face, 
um, there was um, a, a woman in the group and she just would talk over everybody. You know, she just had to talk, talk, talk. And, you know, she just, you know, if her personality, her life experience, she, she just didn't have good, she didn't have good boundaries and it was very frustrating. Um, and, and it was not an issue that the group was able to resolve internally. And so I took her aside and I, you know, not aside, I don't want to make it sound like it was school, but we, we talked outside of the group and, um, I, I explained what, you know, we were experiencing and, um, she, she got it. She understood it. And, um, we need to do a little bit of reinforcing. So to answer your question, if there were conflict, I really would let the group work it out uh, among themselves, um, which they mostly do. And there hasn't been anything that big. Um, but if I needed to, I would talk to somebody, uh, privately. Okay. Uh, Jeanette, has anything like that happened where somebody uh, in the group uh, has um, dominated the conversation? Um, no, again, because it's a very formal presentation yeah. most of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, when we had our own residents presenting and there were people in the audience who also had devices, um, you know, they may contribute from their own experiences, uh, but no, I have never had any difficult situations. That's good to hear. On that same kind of theme, um, how do you keep a group of people that are adjusting to vision loss uh, in a positive conversation? Um, I mean, clearly, Jeanette provides a great deal of information and uh, resources for individuals to cope um, with this change in their life. Uh, Marcy, you have, again, similar type of facility to do that. But there are times where you're meeting in a group where um, this, pardon the expression from Saturday Night Live, you got a Debbie Downer in the group and nothing works. I get those phone calls at Tech Al where we make many suggestions and provide all, you know, several alternatives. And there's nothing's going to make this person feel good about themselves um, in, in that situation at that time. So how do you manage to um, get away from that negativity that sometimes can appear when someone is, um, again, experiencing vision loss? Did you want me to respond to that first? Sure. Why don't you do it, Marcy? Okay. Um, again, I, my group is, uh, they, they will call people out on... They, let me just say that the beauty of the support group, at least the one that I facilitate, is that they can say things to each other that I, I would not say to them. So they can call each other out on things, <laughs> you know, and be very blunt with each other. And so I, I've seen that. I, I've had people in my group that come in and, and, you know, people are in all different places in terms of, you know, adjustment and challenges. Um, and, you know, that's the nice thing about a group is because you have people in different stages and different phases that can really help support each other. And um, so that they do that um, with each other. Um, it's not something or I, I may say, you know, um, you know, can anybody make suggestions to what Gladys, you know, brought up? She's having, sounds like she's having a really hard time 
you know, finding a way to do X, Y, and Z, or this is really, she's really struggling with her relationship with her son. You know, I don't really even have to do that so much because the people in the group, they respond to that. And Mm -hmm. like I said, they say things to each other. You know, I sit and kind of smile, like kind of like the proud parent, even though, of course, I'm not their parents, (laughs) their daughter or whatever. Um, But that's kind of the peer support that that can happen in a group. Um, you know, um, it is, is something that you want to see as a group, you know, kind of gels and matures, but they, they really kind of take care of that among themselves. Uh, Jeanette, how about you? I, I, I guess the only um, situation that I can conceive might happen, I do have people who will come and listen, <clears throat> and they're just not ready to jump in. Mm-hmm. And so if there are other group, other members uh, in the audience who'll say, oh, yeah, but I have that. And oh, my gosh, it has made a difference in my life. Um, I think that's the way that I have peer influence and, and you know, um, actual peer support going on in my group. It's mostly with people who are um, kind of reluctant to jump in and get involved in all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um uh, my next question was going to basically ask about um, referrals, but you guys both have discussed that between the speakers that you've invited um, to provide information. Um, and again, the, the the fact that you're so connected in the community, uh, both, you know, again, Marcy at the facility um, that she uh, you know, holds her meetings or works through, uh, and Jeanette with their vast network um, through the community, of professionals that um, I think we pretty much have already answered that question. So um, I know that neither one of you would be hesitant to provide somebody information that would be a benefit, especially when it came around to um, acquiring services or support for persons that is, have vision loss, whether it be medical or counseling or services um, being provided. So um, I'm, I'm answering your question for you instead, because you already stated that out. Um, so Julianne, I just wanted to give you like a 10 minutes. minute, uh, yeah. no, less than that, nine, okay. not 10 minutes. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, for a two minute section, um, what I wanted to do is um, if Jeanette, you can describe maybe one example, how, having this support group was a benefit to an individual or a group of individuals um, as far as their progress toward adjusting division loss? This is, Julianne, my favorite question that you have (laughs) posed to us. Um, And rather than being general, which is what I had planned to do, and all the people who have gotten CCTVs and um, smartphones and all of that, I'm going to talk about one woman. She moved over into personal care about five years ago, and um, she knew that I was doing this. She had not needed it when she was over here in independent living, but she called me and she said, I'm having trouble reading, and I love to read books. I love to read, so I got, uh, it was during the pandemic, so I couldn't go over but I got over to her uh, two different kinds, uh, a, a handheld magnifier, fairly strong magnification, uh, and a video magnifier. And she chose one of those and said, oh, it's great. And then her POA came to visit and said, oh, my gosh, that's wonderful. I want one of those, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and within, gosh, it must be, well, it's less than these two years, year, year and whatever months of the pandemic. She called and she said, you know, I just love that when Nick got it, but it's just not doing, doing things right. Well, I knew when a resident dies here and has had a CCTV, the community is willing to store those. And so I knew there were some in storage. So I had contacted the social worker who contacted a maintenance man who took it over to her apartment. And she had to kind of figure out the dials herself because there was no one to trade her. (laughs) And she did. And she called me and she was so excited. And while she was on the phone with me, someone walked into her apartment, knew who she had been struggling, saw her using the CCTV and said, that's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of thing that warms my heart. Yeah. Marcy, how about you? I love that story. (laughs) That story. Um, So, Again, I, I'll personalize it too instead of normalizing it. Um, a woman in my support group, this was um, a couple of years ago, just a common theme. You know, every time she came in, she was just, she was so down, really struggling to regain her independence, um, struggling with her relationship with her son, who didn't really understand her needs. One of the issues she brought up that, um, was was giving her great difficulty is that when somebody would drop her off at her house, she could not find her house key quickly enough on her key ring. And so she would stand at her front door and she would be fumbling with her keys and it was stressing her out terribly because the person was waiting to pull away until she got in the house safely. So this was creating great anxiety for her. And somebody in the group said, hey, did you ever try putting a bump dot or <laughs> your key um, so that you could find it easier. She said, you know, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. So the meeting ended. The next meeting came and we did our little ritual around the room. And when we got to her, she said, I had news. We were all like, what? She said, I marked my key and I get in my house in no time flat. And it, it was life-changing for her. Just that one little tiny change on her key ring reduced her stress level so significantly. And I thought, wow, you know, this is what a support group is all about. You know, just people find solutions to what seem like small problems, but are very big problems to them. And so that's always stuck in my mind. Okay. I just lost myself here. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, how about if we open up the questions? I was trying to mute myself because my son also is working from home and he's on a conversation and I'm hoping it's not bleeding over here. Um, let me know, folks, if it is. Um, but in the meantime, uh, can we open it up to some questions? Gary, code 724. Okay, I'm in a support group and I am not the leader, but I am the secretary. And when I lived in South Florida, we had a handicap expo when we used to do what well, some people call it karate. I call it Taekwondo. I've always enjoyed physical activity and public speaking, and I can't seem to get my fellow blind in our support group interested in that. And I don't know if it's because of their age or what. How do I motivate them? Are you looking to motivate them for the exercise or for public speaking? Because you brought up two topics. For both, if I can. (laughs) Okay. 
Ned or uh, Marcy, do you guys have any suggestions? Well, I think it's Marcy. Um, you know, I think that um, motivation comes from life experience. Mm-hmm. If you can kind of look to see like what, what um, needs could be met um, by introducing, you know, um, whether it's Taekwondo, you know, self-defense, anything like that. And they could make that connection between their life experience and that particular activity. Um, I think that's something that could potentially motivate them to be interested. You know, when you think about having a presentation, um, even if they're, you, you can't garner a lot of enthusiasm, maybe they would be open to just having somebody come and present. And sometimes that can. Hmm. Hello. How about you, Jeanette? Jeanette, how about you? Well, being a teacher, I'll take the public speaking part. <laughs> of course. Um, you, you could encourage people um, uh, to prepare for the next meeting and talk about some device that they have uh, that might give them some uh, confidence or experience in public speaking. I, I think if, if I, I hope I won't offend you in saying this, but I think um, we have to be careful. I have to be careful that I don't try to push onto others um, what works for me. And, and so, for example, if I have a hobby, uh, I, I shouldn't assume that everybody's going to love the hobby that I have, but I can encourage them to find a hobby yeah. that, that suits them. Um, so, yes, you might get somebody interested in exercise, or you might get somebody interested in participating in some way as a public speaker by presenting something they've learned. Um, but I'd be careful about trying to push on to them something that interests me. That's a good okay, point. Okay, thank you. That's, that's a good point, Jeanette, because we all have differences. And um, I think polling your group, too, to find out the kind of, getting to know your group, to find out what they like to do. And then capitalize then on that. It's kind of an extension of what both Marcy and Jeanette said. You know, get, who, get feedback from your group. What would they like to do uh, as far as a physical activity or any other kind of activity, such as uh, doing any kind of public speaking? And I know what are, they like. I'm sorry, we are at the end of our okay. time. That was um, a wonderful presentation, ladies. Thank and, you, Julianne, for pulling it together. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Julianne. You're very welcome. Thank you so much uh, for willing to participate like this. And please, if you have any other uh, further questions, you can send your questions off to the PCB office. They'll direct them to the Vision Loss Resource Team. And we'd be happy to uh, share the contact information for the two speakers today, in addition to uh, any support that our Vision Loss Resource Team can provide. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thank you, ladies. The Philadelphia Regional Chapter, an affiliate of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, meets by phone on the second Saturday of each month at 10 a.m. All are welcome. Contact PRC President Shirley M. Brotman at 215-745-5873. PRC members are proud to unite in sponsorship of the 2021 PCB Conference and Convention. Friday Afternoon Announcements. 
Conference sponsors. As we focus our weekend on strengthening community through unity, there are many companies and organizations who have united in our efforts by providing either financial or in-kind sponsorship. PCB is grateful for the following sponsors. Community Organizers, $1,000. Tech Owl, Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children. Community Advocates, $500. Democracy Live, Golden Triangle Council of the Blind. Vanda Pharmaceuticals. Community Supporters, $250. Bureau of Engraving and Printing. Envision America, Hank Bloomberg Chapter of PCB, Philadelphia Regional Chapter of PCB, Sites for Hope, Washington County Council of the Blind, In-Kind Contributors, ACB Media Network, Audio Description Associates, Keystone Council of the Blind, Netflix, Pennsylvania Guide Dog Users and Supporters, Stuff Puffed Marshmallows, Dozens more have contributed prizes for our annual auction or have donated their time and talents to our programming. We appreciate everyone's support. Registration Office Reminders Registration is free. It's not too late to register for the conference. If you are not already registered, but you plan to attend and support the PCB auction on Sunday at 3 p.m., you need to get signed up as a bidder. It's also not too late to purchase $5 tickets for our annual 50-50 raffle to support future conference subsidies. That raffle will be drawn on Saturday evening. You need not be present to win. The registration office will be open Friday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. Call 717-920-9999 or toll-free. 877-617-7407 or email pcboffice at pcb1.org to register, sign up for the auction, or purchase 50-50 tickets by noon Saturday. Seeking conference assistance. If during the weekend you have technical questions, such as Zoom functions, connection issues, sound quality, or the like, you may call 412-294-8077 or email techassist at pcb1.org. For general conference information or questions, email conferenceinfo at pcb1.org or call 717 920-9999 or 877-617-7407. Good communication practices. This year we are offering automated captioning through Zoom for those who have difficulty hearing. As you enter the webinar, you should receive a notification letting you know that captioning is available if you wish to use it. If you select to do so, the transcripts will open in a new panel or window. For all participants, we ask that when you raise your hand, you have your question or comment ready. Make your point quickly to allow time for others to contribute. Begin your remarks by stating your name. Speak loudly and clearly throughout your remarks so they can be captioned correctly. Do your best to avoid background noise. If using a screen reader such as JAWS, 
Please use headphones. Stay muted whenever you are not speaking. Do not speak over other people. Please be patient and respectful while others are speaking. We will all have a pleasant and productive convention if we all practice good communication skills. Exhibits. Pre-recorded exhibits will be streamed on ACB Media 8 throughout the overnight and select times when conference events are not being streamed. Please consult the schedule for breaks. Door prizes. If you have registered for the 2021 PCB Conference and Convention, your name has automatically been entered in our door prize drawing. Listen during the scheduled door prize times to see if you win. When your name is chosen, you will need to claim your prize. You will be given 15 minutes to do so. If you are present on Zoom, when your name is called, simply raise your hand. If you are listening on ACB Media at the time, contact our door prize king, Will Grignon, directly at 727-564-9759 or email him at wgrignon13 at gmail.com. Should a prize go unclaimed during the time window, both the name and the prize will go back in the pool for future drawings. Claimed prizes will be sent to the address provided during registration. All righty. Excellent. All right, I, I could listen to Sue all day. Yeah. All right. Um, we're going to do a couple of prizes from yesterday that weren't claimed. And uh, like we said, we threw the, num- uh, the prize back in and the name back in. So the first prize is a $10 cash prize from Keystone. The magic number is 23. Patricia Keebler, are you in the house? Raise your hand if you are. If not, you have 15 minutes to contact me at 727-564-9759 or WGRIGNON13 at gmail.com. Our next, our next prize is a $15 Burger King gift card. It's about lunch. Donated by Philadelphia Regional. Thank you. And I just want to take it. One more time to say thank you to all our donors. The number is 119. The corresponding name is Francis Venon. Venon, Francis, are you here? Raise your hand. Okay, you have 15 minutes to contact me at 727-564-9759. Our next prize is a $20 cash prize donated by the Washington chapter. The number is 109. Michael Gravitt, are you in the house? Well, he is. He raised it. All right. <laughs> in a hurry. Our next prize is a $15 Panera, good food, gift card, donated by Pennsylvania Council of the Blind. The number is 41. And the winner is Elaine Young. Elaine, are you in the house? Raise your hand or call me at 727 564 9759. You can text me to that number or email me at WGRIGNON13 
at gmail.com. 15 minutes, the clock is running. The next prize is a $20 well, cash prize. Well, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, but Elaine did raise her hand, so she oh. is here. Excellent. I have noted it. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. We have a $20 cash prize donated by the Lehigh Valley chapter. The number is 37. Yeah. And the winner is Jackie Wissinger. Are oh, you here? Hi, Jackie. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. You have 15 minutes to contact me. 727-564-9759. W-G-R-I-G-N-O-N-1-3 at gmail.com. Jackie's hand was raised, by the way. Okay. Oh, is that Jay? Yeah, Jay Wissinger. Okay, see, I, I apologize. I yeah, no problem. All right. <laughs> okay, so we have two of them. Good. All right. Our next prize is a $20 Amazon gift card. You can buy anything in there. Two billion items. Donated by the Hank Bloomberg chapter. Thank you. The number is eight. The winner is Lisa Salinger. Lisa, are you in the All house? Right, Lisa. Raise your hand. Lisa's hand Lisa. is raised. She's on there, the panelist Doug. side. Or oh, the, okay. You know. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Our next prize is a dollar, a ten dollar cash prize. Donated by Pegasus, the Pennsylvania guide dog. Users and supporters group. The number is 110. And the winner is Musi Allard. Anybody know Musi Allard? Musi, are you in the house? M-U-C-I-E-A-L-L-A-R-D. Okay, Musi, you have 15 minutes to contact me, 727-564-9759. And our last prize for this session, a $25 apple gift card donated by the golden triangle chapter thank you the number is 49 and it's roger simmons roger you in the house thank you very much will you're welcome marianne Easily recognize U.S. banknotes with independence and confidence with the iBill talking banknote identifier All qualified U.S. citizens and legal residents who are blind or visually impaired can receive this small handheld device for free. That's right, I said for free. Just complete the application located on the Bureau of Engraving and Printing's website at moneyfactory.gov. You can also email meaningful.access at bp.gov or contact BP's Currency Reader Programs Information Line toll-free at 844-815-815. 9388 to request that an application be mailed to you. Let the iBill give you a quick, reliable way to identify the bills you use when making a purchase anywhere you go. Please note that due to the pandemic situation, there is currently an extended delay in currency reader fulfillment. So in the meantime, please consider downloading one of our sponsored free mobile apps, the iNote for Apple and Ideal Currency Identifier for Android. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Our next session um, will be moderated by Rose Mary Martin, who is um, our current second vice president of PCB and who is the current president of the um, Pennsylvania Guide Dog Users and Supporters Group. And um, we're going to discuss today the nurturing, the handler and guide dog bond. And we'll be joined by... Um, three 
panelists from that, from PAGDIS, from the Pennsylvania Guide Dogs Users and Supporters Organization, and representatives from the Guide Dog Foundation. And we will let that discussion begin by um, Rosemary with Rosemary. Thank you, Marianne. Good afternoon, PCB. As Marianne said, I am Rose Martin, president of PAGDIS, which is the newest affiliate of PCB. Um, so today, as Marianne said, we are going to be discussing, discussing nourishing, nurturing the guide dog um, handler bond, which we thought you know goes well with the overall three theme of the PCB conference, Strengthening Community Through Unity. Um, this obviously appeals to any current perspective or past handler, whether you've had one or multiple guide dogs. Um, so just a quick overview and then we'll get started. Um, there will be two parts to this session. Um, first, we're going to have the kind of a school perspective, and we're excited to have Lauren and Cameron from the Guide Dog Foundation with us to discuss cultivating the trust and unity of a new guide dog team. And second, um, we're going to have a handler's perspective with a pan panel of PAGDIS members to sort of discuss the joys and challenges to the bond um, in relation to retirement, loss, failed matches, and even life during this pandemic. And then to close out, we'll have a door prize specific for PADDIS from the session and questions if time permits. So with that said, let me give a quick intro for Lauren and Cameron, and then I will let them get started. So Cameron uh, McGlendon, um, she graduated from the University of Georgia with a degree in animal science. Yes. Um, while in college, she began volunteering with the Guide Dog Foundation and developed a passion for the organization. Over the past five years, Cameron has been working for the Guide Dog Foundation at their New York campus as a Guide Dog Mobility Instructor. And she recently relocated to the Bay Area and is now the Graduate Support Manager for GDF and America's Vet Dogs. And Lauren Berglund graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in Child Adult Family Services. She has past experience in higher education, disability services, vocational rehabilitation services, and legislative advocacy. Lauren is the Consumer Relations Coordinator at the Guide Dog Foundation and America's Vet Dogs that place guide and service dogs with veterans, first responders, and blind individuals. Lauren and Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. We're very happy to hear from you. Hi, thank you for that warm welcome. Just wanted to confirm that everyone can hear me. Yes, you're all good. Okay, perfect. My name is Cameron, and as that very warm welcome, um, I am with the Guide Dog Foundation, and I'm going to be going over this um, unity and bonding with your guide dog today. So, again, thank you very much for letting me come. Um, Lauren will be here as well to help with some Q&A probably at the end um, after the panel, but we are both very happy to be here. So I kind of did this talk a little bit in relation to bonding with your guide dog. A lot of it's going to be kind of related to a successor guide dog as well um, because it's a little bit different. So the first time with your guide dog, very brand new, never had a guide dog before, your bonding with that dog may be different than someone who has had a dog before and they're trying to build a new relationship 
they are both very important. Um, we put a lot of energy into making these bonds occur, but I think it is very relevant to acknowledge that each person is going to have a very individual and different experience when bonding with their guide dog. So I'm going to kick it off by talking about that many of you have had several guide dogs um, and you understand the challenge that may be faced when you're retiring your beloved partner and you're going to be starting retraining with a new guide. Um, this kind of puts you into an emotional spin. It's hard adjusting from one time to another. Um, other people may be retiring their first dog and they're experiencing this transition for the first time. And then there may be a few of you that have just never even gotten a dog before. And you're probably looking at this with super excited, like I'm very excited to meet my first guide dog and have this experience. But you are not going to be alone if you are also nervous about this. Um, it is a brand new life experience. You may not have ever worked with a guide dog at all before. You've never even pet one. You may not have any friends who have a guide dog. So this is kind of that opportunity for you to learn. One thing I always want any of my individuals that I'm working with, any new clients, um, any graduates that have had dogs ACB before, media eight. I just want them to realize okay. that their past experiences are actually a wonderful resource. Oh and I always want to acknowledge those past experiences. Um, individuals have gone through real life scenarios where they've used their dog and they understand when it's time to trust the dog and when it may be time to step in and maybe manage the dog and kind of get through it. Um, you may have to use other friends or support members to help you with that. Also, understand that mistakes happen. Um, anytime that you work with your dog, whether it's a new team, it's a team that's been around for a while, mistakes are going to happen, and I think they are wonderful learning opportunities. So this is a time where you kind of, okay, well, that didn't really go how I wanted it to. You can kind of brush it off, and then you can apply that knowledge to your future dog um, or future scenario with your dog. Um, it's kind of that whole idea of you fall off the horse, you get back on. Um, you're probably not going to do the same thing you were doing when you fall off the first time. You want to change it again. Um, and then also humor. So we all have those embarrassing stories that you just can't forget. Um, it's sometimes nice to be able to share that story with people. It kind of helps, especially if there's a brand new guide dog user in the group with you. It's pretty funny sometimes to hear some of those stories of things that have occurred, even as a puppy raiser. I have fun stories that I can share with my clients when I'm working with them. I think my most fun, embarrassing story was whenever I actually was raising a collie for our program. We no longer have collies. Um, we were not able to have, they were not that successful. Um, over time. But my favorite thing about the Collie, if you've ever been around a Collie, they have a very long pointy face and they like to get their nose in places that shouldn't go. So there were several situations where I would either be in a bathroom stall and there goes the Collie's face underneath to say hello to the next person, um, which was quite startling to that person. Or there were a couple times where he was walking along a path and he used his little nose to lift up somebody's skirt. So there are very very different stories that could occur during your time frame of working with a guide dog um, that can be quite humorous and fun to reflect on. So in preparation to getting a guide dog for the first time, or if you are transitioning from your older, more experienced guide to a new guide, um, there's a few things I want someone to keep in mind. So it's human nature to remember only the good. 
and reflect on how easy it may have been when you first worked with your older guide. Um, typically, people are going to be moving on and retiring their guide dog after maybe about eight years of work. So it's been a long time since those first six months, and you kind of just forget about those struggles that may have occurred. So in preparation for an easier transition to your successor guide, I always want my clients to keep a few things in mind. Um, emotional well-being. So I want you to acknowledge strong feelings you had for your former guide. If you've never had a guide dog before, it's good to acknowledge the feelings you have. If you're anxious or you're nervous or you're not really sure what to expect, acknowledge those things. That's the first step. And adjustment periods. So remind yourself that your team's going to need time to bond. As much as we would like to hand you a guide dog and then be done, that you guys are already forming a great team, you, you're nailing everything, um, it's, it's not going to happen that first day. Um, we're going to give you guys tons of time to bond, work on that relationship on campus, um, but it's something you're going to continue to develop once you go home with the dog. Um, this adjustment period can vary for each person. It could be three months, six months. It could be up to a year. Um, it's very different for each person and each dog. Personalities change. So if you're coming for a successor dog, it's good to reflect on that you may no longer be the same individual you were when you got your first dog. So lifestyles change. Um, our home environments change. Different needs that we may have alter over the course of our lives which means that each time you reapply or have a new guide dog or decide to go for a guide dog for the first time in your life, things have probably changed and it's good to recognize that. And again, mistakes happen. So we're going to experience those mistakes and then we're going to learn from them. And that is what's going to help us continue to develop and build that bond. So in guide dog training, the dog training industry is ever-changing. Over time, guide dog schools have grown and we've moved away from some of those traditional techniques and we've moved to a more positive-based training techniques. We understand that these changes can be intimidating. We have developed our programs to support each of our graduates and applicants through these changes while kind of setting you and your new guide dog, oops, sorry, you and your new guide dog up for success. And our goal as guide dog mobility instructors is to support you on your journey to becoming the best handler possible. So each time you work with a new partner, whether it's your first one or it's your third or your sixth, there are lots of people out there that have been working with guide dogs for a long time. Every time it's a great opportunity to refresh your skills and kind of learn some new possibilities. Um, it may even be, it's kind of as we reflected your needs may have changed. So you may have had a really fast city-driven dog ready to go, go, go before. And those types of dogs sometimes need more management. They kind of, because of the energy of the surroundings you're in, so if you're in New York City, there's a lot more distractions. So maybe now your lifestyle has changed. You no longer live in New York City. You've actually retired. You live in Florida. You kick back every day. It's a nice chill time so that go-getter dog that you had that you needed to work with in the city may not be what you need now we may need to give you a more laid back um, kind of very chill dog and your handling between those two dogs are going to need to change um, so that's those time frames where we really appreciate when our clients are open-minded and reflect upon what has changed in their experience and how they can be that best handler 
So those are great opportunities for us to discuss um, during training, before training, and with you even after training. So there's a couple goals that I typically have for training. So before my clients even come to campus, I'm usually giving them a call to meet them first. We like to have a conversation just to see if anything has changed since the last time we spoke with them regarding their application. Kind of get some goals for them. So typically I'm asking a graduate who's about to come onto campus to work with the dog, what are three goals they have for their relationship? What is something they wanna be able to accomplish while on campus? And I'm gonna do my best to set that up for them. I'm also gonna see how open they are to things. So communicating with them, building that relationship is really gonna help me know how we're gonna design their class. When they first get to class, I want them to be open to those changes. So first off, we're gonna get you kind of your feet wet by dumping, jumping into Juno work. So those who have worked with guide dogs before know that Juno work is how we teach an individual how to work with a guide dog without the dog. So a GDMI or an instructor will use a harness without the dog in it. And we're gonna go through basic footwork, hand motions, verbal cues, and how to follow the dog. That's gonna let you get that kind of familiarity with the techniques before we have to add in the dog, which can sometimes be a little bit more stressful for people. It's easy to make a mistake with a human, um, but sometimes it gets a little bit nerve wracking to make that mistake with the dog, especially because the dogs are trained and it's like, oh my gosh, they know how to do it all. I'm the one messing it up. Nope, you're learning together. And that's why we like to do that Juno bit first. I also encourage all of my graduates who are coming back for a successor dog to reflect on their past learning. Those experiences are very valuable and they are going to apply to working with a new dog. But I just then ask that they stay open to new experiences as well. Um, this reflects back on the needs changing over time or maybe even the techniques that the organization uses has changed over time. And I just want them to be open to learning about those and seeing how these new techniques may work for them. At that same time, I'm open to listening to an individual who may have found a lot of success with a certain technique that we are moved away from or I may not be familiar with. And I am happy to work with them on that so we can make sure that it works for the dog that they have and they are going to be a safe team using these things together. Again, an individual's handling style may need to be adjusted based on the needs of the new guide. Um, that's going to be the difference between someone may, may need to do a lot of performance management versus someone that may need to be a little bit more supportive with their dog. Um, these things are going to be learned on class, definitely. Um, you'll start to experience and learn that dog's personality and that downtime. So you're not always go, go, go. There's a lot of times during guide dog class where it's the end of the night, you've finished up dinner, everyone has returned to the room, and it's just you and your dog. And that's the time that you get to learn the personality traits, the favorite belly rub spot, the favorite toy. That's the time where you guys really get to start that unity together and learn how to bond with that dog. And then again, just handler changes as a team can help the team communicate better. So as you get to learn that dog every night, you get to learn what they like in petting. So some dogs love being petted on their head, but many dogs don't actually. It's kind of one of those things that everyone's always showing on TV where you just reach down and you kind of put your head on top, your hand on top of the dog's head and you kind of rub between their ears. 
And I have to say, after working with as many dogs as I had, there's not too many that like it. I mean, I personally don't like it if someone walks up and just kind of like rubs my head. I'm like, eh, kind of strange. I would rather you kind of ease into it, but thanks. Dogs are the same way. So each dog is going to have a different preference on how they want to be petted. So some dogs, instead of over the head, they may prefer under the chin. Um, they may prefer their chest. They may prefer right at the base of their tail be the spot that gets scratched. So learning those things is going to help you kind of bond with what the, motivates the dog. And that's going to help build that partnership between the two of you. Communication is also another thing that needs to be um, focused on. So you want to be able to develop a rapport with your instructor. Um, that's going to help you kind of express your needs um, during class. So if you become distracted or something happens on class where you need a little bit more support, um, you may be getting a little overwhelmed with all the instruction, you kind of need to just take a break. Um, something that you're learning is a little bit more difficult for you to pick up on and you need it broken down into smaller steps. That is a perfect thing to explain to your instructor because then we can help you meet your needs, which is then going to help you meet the needs of the dog. And that's going to help your bond. If you're feeling overwhelmed by the whole process of your learning, it's going to distract from that bonding between you and the dog. So let your instructor know so we can help. Um, you and your dog are going to need time. You're going to need time to learn how to communicate as a team. So all of that time after hours where you can kind of sit down, get to know one another, those are all going to be perfect. And then in general, just old techniques that you may have used with a different organization or a different dog um, may confuse a new dog. So it's important that if you're going to be changing handling styles to know that some of those new handling styles are going to require concentration and repetition, and it could be frustrating. So that's those points where we want you to come back and talk to your instructor and express those feelings so that we can help you kind of be aware of them, find new ways to help you learn and really meet your needs again so it can help you and the dog. Other goals for training, again, I'm going to say it 8 million times. You're going to hear it today. You're probably going to hear it from the panelists. You're going to hear it any time in life. Mistakes will happen. Um, nothing and no one is ever perfect. If someone tells you that they are perfect and they have never made a mistake, you can nod politely and say, okay, but just know that there has been a mistake that has happened at one point in their life. And mistakes are great. They're learning opportunities. It gives you an opportunity to be, whoa, <laughs> that didn't work. What can I do to make that work next time? And you learned. You learned something from that and you can apply it to the future. Um, mistakes sometimes don't feel the best, uh, especially if there's a high-pressure situation. Your mistake can feel like it is devastating. World-ending. I'm never going to recover from it. But typically, we do. It just may take us a little bit of, all right, well, I'm going to go kind of hide in the corner for a second until everyone else forgets about it, and then I'm going to go back out there and I'm going to try again. The nice thing, though, is dogs are actually very resilient. So thank goodness for that, because they are very forgiving. So you as a handler, you're going to make mistakes as you start to learn with the dog. And you will rebound from that. The dogs are resilient. They forgive us. Um, we can be a sloppy handler, and they just kind of look at us like, all right, that wasn't right, but sure, I'll listen. 
Or I think my favorite is every time there is always that one person on class who does not know their left from their right. So we ask the dog for a left turn with our voice while our body is making a right turn. And typically everyone laughs about it. The dog listens to the body. That's why we have several cues between verbal and physical cues um, to help the dog understand the environment and actually realize what we need to say. But the dog's not going to hold that against the human. We're, they're not going to say, oh, you don't know your left and your right. I can't trust you ever. Nope. The dog is going to be resilient. They're going to forgive you for that. And you guys together can learn from it. And next time, probably be a little bit more e easier in your flow. And lastly, for training, laugh it out. So there's going to be times during training that may feel silly, overwhelming, frustrating, wonderful, sad, or it may just be difficult to express how you feel. You just don't have the words for it. But I, at the end of the day, laughter is your best medicine. Um, there have been so many scenarios. It could be the left or right scenario where you just stop and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how many times we're going to mess this up. Or you just do something that to you was super, super embarrassing. And it's better just to pause, just stop the work, shake it off. That's something we have for the dogs. Anytime you see a dog, sometimes if they feel a little bit stressed, you may see them do a full body shake. So it may start at their head and it ends at their tail. My favorite, whenever it takes a long delay to get from one end to the other. Um, it could just be a little small one, but the dog can shake it off. You can be silly, shake it off, whip your hands around, um, laugh a little, and then just try it again. That is all I ever ask for someone that is coming to work with a dog is to get to that bond, to that great unity. There's going to be times where we just got to laugh it out, shrug it off, and we try again. All right, so now the next thing is once class is over, that bond is not solidified yet. A lot of people think that the hard part is coming onto campus and learning how to work with the dog, but truly your journey is just starting when you leave campus and you transition home. This is going to be each individual's first time to truly work independently with their new guide. So it's going to be up to you as the handler how to decide how to best manage your dog's performance. So you're going to want to set clear expectations, that communication that we talked about earlier. You want to be consistent. So you want to do the same thing over and over again. You want to make sure that every time we ask for this, we're asking in the same way. You want to reinforce positive behavior. You are going to praise that dog. We use verbal praise, we use physical praise, and we use food reward. And we use all three of these things with your dog because those things help that, re that relationship get established. And it shows them time and time again that this is what I want. Thank you for doing that. And I would love to see it again. Just like us. Um, or if you go to work, it's your paycheck. So I love work. I absolutely love training dogs and working with clients. But at the end of the day, if I don't have money to meet my other needs and my food, my housing, all these things, I wouldn't be able to continue that. So the fact that I get that paycheck to help me keep going is fantastic. But there's lots of other things that can be reinforcing, right? It doesn't just have to be job. It could just be you worked really hard on a presentation or you worked really hard to get this entire conference together and someone just acknowledges that hard work and all that effort and it helps you like, ah, yes, that's why I'm doing this. But we also have to discourage any bad behavior as well. 
So right when you get home, you're going to have to set those boundaries of what we, what expectations we have for this dog in our home. Are they allowed to jump on the furniture? Previous to you getting them, no, they were not allowed to jump on furniture. So that would be something that you as a handler get to decide. Do you want your dog to be able to jump on the couch, onto the bed, or are you going to make that into a rule that they should not do? So that's where that communication consistency should be. It can take six months to a year before a team starts to feel settled into their new environment. So I don't want anyone to get these expectations of, oh my gosh, how is this going to work? I just got home with a dog and it just feels like we don't know each other. That is fine. It takes different people different amount of time. And six months is not a short time. I mean, six months is how long it really takes for you to both get settled into your home and to really start to understand one, one another and how you work together. And even past that, it may take you longer to truly feel like a seasoned team. One thing I like to tell everyone is having a strong support system can play a big role in a team's development as they learn to work together. So that's something that as you are working on your bond and becoming that unit with your dog, it's good to have other people that you can speak with to kind of either peers that have had guide dogs before, they can kind of help relate with the experience. They can tell you how long it maybe took them. You don't want to compare your experiences, but it's good to hear that other people have gone through this before. Or even just having family members that understand the needs that you need to put into place to work with your dog and to be successful. So goals for transitioning home, it's good to prepare and educate your family and friends ahead of time. So you've been working really hard to start this bond on campus. And when you come home, you're going to continue that bond. Being able to tell your friends and family members what you need to do to focus on that bond is going to be very helpful. So letting them know that you're going to be doing most of the play and most of the food giving to the dog, because that's going to be something that's going to help you guys become partners. Um, you may need to introduce your new guide dog to your retired guide dog or to other pets in the household and kind of doing that in a safe manner that's also going to help protect y'all's bond. Set aside time to play and to bond with your new dog. Even at the end of the day, it's been a really, really busy day. You're tired, but take five, ten minutes to sit there and just do a full grooming with your dog or just sit there and pet the dog. Or if they have a favorite game they like to play, do a clear and pet the dog. Or if they have a favorite game they like to play, do a quick session. That's going to go a long way. Don't forget that it's going to take time for your team to settle into a new home and establish a schedule. Like I said, that could take up to three to six months just to settle into the home and get that schedule going. And then the bond can come. It's all going to come in time. You want to pattern good behavior in and out of the home. That's going to help set you guys up for success. It's going to give you a lot of more reinforcement points. Um, when you first get home, you're going to start getting started on your routes and allow extra time for learning. So start with a few simple routes and then build up from there. Rome was not built in a day, so neither is your relationship with the dog. You're going to slowly do these things so you guys can be successful. Be extra supportive with your dog and very generous with praise and rewards. So this is where you know your environment and you have to teach your dog how to do that same environment. So it's going to take that extra support to get there. And be proactive and make a plan for transition back to work, um, school, social events, any activities that you maybe do often. Um, make a plan of how it's going to set you and your new guide dog up for success to transition into those. 
And as we kind of wrap this up so that we can jump to the panel, um, there are some general reminders that I want you guys to reflect upon. When you receive your guide dog, they are still young. They are still maturing. Um, we have trained the skills that they need, but they still need the experience to develop into their work ethic. So it's going to take time for them really to learn how to communicate with you and how to get all this stuff perfect. And again, perfect is not always going to happen. Those mistakes will still happen over time. But it is up to you to maintain your dog's training and to communicate your work expectations to get to those goals of being very good together. The more consistent and rewarding you are as a handler, the more motivated your dog will be to work with you and you will grow into a strong working team together. And lastly, just like in any relationship, trust will gradually build over time between you and your dog. This is not going to happen overnight or by chance, but it is well worth the investment. And if you guys just put that time in, make sure that you have small achievable steps and that you're building that bond, you will definitely get there. Right. That was the end of my presentation. So we can jump to the panelists if you guys are ready. Thank you so much, Cameron. That was fantastic. All really great points and reminders. Um, yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into the panel. And I'm sure we all might circle back and have questions for Cameron and Lauren at the end. Um, but so we have four, I believe, hopefully panelists from PAGDIS. And we will all just take a few minutes um, to speak on topics that we've come prepared with. And then, you know, we may bounce off each other a bit as well. But um, I think first, Mike, grab it. If you're there, I know you have another commitment. So if you are here, you can speak now so that just in case, and if not, we'll circle back to you. So I'll give you a second in case you're here. Well, my name is Mike Gravit. I, uh, I live here in Pittsburgh. Um, I've been a guide dog handler since 2005. I'm on my second guide dog. Uh, I had my first dog from 2005 through 2016. Uh, gave me 11 years of work. Uh, and currently, uh, my current dog, I've been working for just about five years now. It's hard to believe. So, um, you know, but I think, you know, basically, you know, from my perspective, Cameron covered a lot of great points, even some things I needed to be reminded of. And I think makes sense for all of us to hear because unfortunately I think just human nature at some point you, you begin to take your relationship with your dog for granted um, and I'll openly admit that sometimes I'm guilty of that and I have to step back and 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 realize that you know I basically have a live creature here who has you know, given or is giving their life to me you know and basically giving me independence and giving me freedom uh, and giving me a quality of life. And, and, and what can you possibly ever do? Sorry. Sorry, I'm a, I'm a little shook up. Sorry, Mike. We all feel you. <laughs> no, we we had a we had a almost a bad accident this morning. Yeah, I was hit by a car, and what to say? Everybody involved was very lucky, but I think 
it's uh starting to get to me at the very wrong moment so no i apologize thanks for bearing with me there but no really my point is you, you have a dog or you know a creature that's given you everything and can possibly even get to the point where they make the the ultimate sacrifice Well, we're glad to hear you guys are all yeah. good. Nice. I mean, playing with your dog and bonding with your dog. This is the least you can do. 100%. They don't ask for much. They don't ask for anything. You know, it's not like you got to go buy them the latest cell phone or the newest clothes or the nicest TV. You know, all they want is a little love, a little petting, a little attention in return for everything that's given to you so that's my point not quite as eloquently as i was hoping to make it but i, I appreciate everyone uh bearing with me here so thank you very much and uh uh i appreciate everyone listening thank you thank you mike so glad we had no idea but i'm glad you're here and you're good all raw and real emotions right there and we all have experienced them as well so Big hugs to you too. Um, and if you want to jump in at all again, feel free. Um, yeah. Um, let's go to Melissa as a first time handler to kind of give us her input as, you know, the joys and challenges with her first dog and what her life has been like. So, Hi, everyone. I'm, my name is Melissa. I'm PCB's Director of Outreach and Engagement, and I'm also a guide dog handler. So I got my dog about five and a half years ago. And I had to say I had a slightly different experience than those in my class. And this kind of brings me to a very important lesson that when you're if you're on campus in a class, getting your training for your guide dog, you're all going to have different experiences and interactions with your dog, with your instructor, and that bond's going to look different um, immediately for everyone. And as a first-time handler, I saw my classmates, a lot of them immediately bonding with their dog. Um, A lot of the dogs, you know, who were close with the instructors were then able to transition um, and change their loyalty to their handlers very quickly. So for the instructors, it was kind of like, Hey, love you, but see ya. And that was very hard for me because I had a dog who was pretty attached to his instructor. And he's the type who um, is only close to one person at a, at a time and makes that very clear. So I was a little discouraged at first when I saw everyone in my class bonding with their dogs so quickly. And mine was still looking at my instructor and I could barely get him to wag his tail around me. And I was like, oh, what am I doing? to make this dog not like me. I'm, I'm, I've always been an animal person. I know it's nothing I'm doing wrong per se, but are we just not meant to be? Is this not my match? Um, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, he actually developed an abscess on his paw within the first few days of training. Um, there was a piece of glass that got stuck in his pad, his paw pad along the way. Um, so he had to go into surgery and um, was out of commission for a couple days. And then he had to have a booty put on his paw so we could at least walk around and train together. But during that time, um, I think he saw 
that I was the one, you know, kind of really worried about him. I was the one who he would wake up in the morning and see. I was the one who was, you know, making sure the booty was secure on his foot. Um, I was the one just sitting by his crate or um, sitting out with him on leash, just encouraging him, um, you know, making sure that he was okay, fussing over him, um, letting him know that I was going to be his companion through this. And even though he was uncomfortable and hated that, that little bandage on his paw, um, he had me to look out for him. And I think that was such an important step in our bond, just that instant trust of, hey, you're not feeling well. Um, you know, let me be here for you and kind of set the precedent when I'm not feeling well, you're going to be here for me. And that was kind of my experience. And and through that and through really looking out for each other in, you know, sort of that medical way, we started really um, making a lot of headway in our bond the next three weeks that I was in training at Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Um, we, so he started really looking to me instead of his instructor um, he started showing me his his um, his energy, his enthusiasm, his love, his dedication to his job, and especially when we went home. You know, I was worried that he'd be sad because he'd be missing his instructor or his his fellow um, kennel mates. But we just took off um, figurative, figuratively and literally. He is such a fast dog. He showed me his true pace. Um, I was even shocked by that. He he just took off in so many ways and as a first-time handler I can't stress enough that um, that bond does take time to develop and it's it might not be perfect at first but you shouldn't compare yourself to other teams Um, you just need to look at your bond and how can you strengthen your individual bond with your dog and I have to say five and a half years later um, we we couldn't be closer Um, we're so in sync I could lift a finger one way and he knows to turn left or right Um, there's been many times I'm carrying grocery bags. I can't give him any signal. I just give a quiet signal with my voice and he's on it. Um, he runs to destinations that he, he, he has been to. Um, he in college memorized my class schedule, just incredible things that, and ways in which our, our personalities and our general outlook on life just melded together. I mean, we've memorized Boston, Washington, DC. We've been so many different places been on every mode of public transportation and and through that our bond has gotten stronger because we just depend on each other we've been through so much so many phases of life and in that we've had each other as a constant and i I think that's so important um to both dog and handler that you are their constant you are their source of happiness um and when you're stressed they're there to comfort you um when you're stressed they're there to comfort you if they get a little um, stress in a situation, you're there to comfort them and reassure them that they have it. We both, uh, you know, it's a constant reassurance for both dog and handler. Um, it's a constant, I'm here for you. You're here for me. Let's conquer the world together. Um, that's That's been my experience with bonding with my dog. And it's been so influential to how I, I view teamwork in life and how I view trust and loyalty. Awesome. Thank you so much, Melissa. Um, Bob, let's hear from your uh, your perspective, um, and then I will go after you. Um, but I know Bob has had a few dogs as well, and he's also, like me, experienced bonding with a new dog during a pandemic. And 
previous loss and things of that nature. So, Bob, if you want to take two or three minutes, and then I will follow up after you. Sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, so, yeah, I'm Bob. I live in Pittsburgh. I've been a handler since '09 on my third dog. Um, and it has been a, a different experience. Um, I lost my last dog uh, last September uh, to melanoma. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, it's going to happen. You just don't know when, and, you know, you have to get through it. And not only did I have to get through it, my family had to get through it. Uh, including my, at the time, nine-year-old daughter who really took it hard. Um, but I, I was in a situation, a surprising situation where I was actually able to go back to, to seeing eye pretty quickly after, um, Jenga died. Um, and I, you know, I was up in the air. Should I go? It's probably too soon, but if I don't go, it could be a year, two, maybe three before I get the chance to go again. And, you know, I was in a situation at work where I was switching roles and it just seemed like, you know, logically, stoically the best time to go. Um, so, you know, my last dog dies on September 1st and on September 27th, I'm off to the seeing eye to get my new dog. And, you know, while we were there, you know, just focusing on the stuff we were there, uh, we weren't necessarily dealing with uh, the home life stuff, the, the fact that I was, you know, that we lost Jenga and all that. Uh, so things went pretty well there with him. Well, the work was great. Um, you know, our bond was decent. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you never know with the dogs. It, it, the bonds, they come slowly, like everybody's saying. You know, I, I think it's really taken me and, and Peter uh, just about a year to really for him to really feel comfortable with me because I've, you know, I've had to figure out, you know, how he ticks. Um, he's a big, strong boy like my last dog was, but he responds differently, um, much differently in situations. I, my last dog, I had to, I had to be tougher on my last dog. I, you know, I had to uh, correct him early on a fair amount. Um, and uh, this dog didn't respond well to the corrections. I had to, you know, he, he was kind of softer on the inside. Uh, and I had to figure that out. It took me a while to figure that out. You know, and I think part of that too was just because it was so soon after the last dog that, you know, kind of going through the grieving process and, oh gosh, this crazy new dog's in my house. And, oh my gosh, he's crazy. Because <laughs> we have a cat. And like, the first day, you know, he came home. Uh, he sees the cat. The cat freaks out and goes and hides. I uh, need a step ladder to bring her down from the <laughs> from the top of. Uh, I forget what she was on, but uh, but that's all worked out too. She'll actually sleep with him now and approach him and lay on him and things like that. And it's pretty neat. But uh, you know, just trying to figure out how to work. Uh, you know, during the pandemic with the new dog, getting him out, uh, getting him working. Even though I wasn't going to work, I was still working from home, and uh, I'm gradually easing easing into work. I've been to been to the office a couple times with him. Um, he still has some getting used to to do with the office, um, just because he hasn't had to do it a lot. Being there for six, eight, nine hours a day, having to lay still, 
Uh, not the easiest thing for him. Um, but uh, I'm pretty happy with where we are. Uh, it's It's been a long process. It's been difficult. Um, I, you know, I've been through some things with him. I, you know, you just don't expect to have to go through. And, uh, but he's, you know, like I said, we, we have a really good bond now. I think, I think he likes me a lot. Uh, I know he really loves my, my daughter, I think is his favorite human. And, uh, but, but he's really, he's really bonded to me now. And, you know, I can tell, you can tell those things, you know, he's always coming to be petted and he'll lean against, you know, how they lean against you and how they'll, you know, how they'll put their head on you and stuff like that. And, you know, so I can really, I can really sense that he's, you know, that, that we are, we are a team and I like that team part, you know, because uh, as, you know, as alluded to earlier, the dog, you know, the dog does does work for you and gives you their life basically, and is willing to give you their life happily. Does so with unconditional, and, and you know, in return, you have to make the right decisions and and have good awareness, and, and sometimes have a little luck um, as well. Um, Amen to that. So, uh, yeah, you know. Um, but but you get through that too, and then you know, and and you hopefully you can rely on the previous bonding experiences you've had, um, you know, in time to to be able to get out there and get back at get back at it like you were before. But uh, yeah, I I'm rambling too much here. But no, uh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, so, I, I can stop now. <laughs> no, you're don't you're good. I'm gonna go through real quick about my experience, and then if we have another minute or two. We can add any closing remarks. So um, thank you all. Um, I, a lot of my points will be echoing what other panelists and Cameron had spoken about. Um, I'm on my third dog. Um, I've kind of run the gamut of experiences with my three. Um, my first um, had to retire early. Um, second one experienced lots of different health issues throughout his life, but was able to work for more than seven years before suddenly losing him. And now I received my current guy, Cato, in February of 2020 from Seeing Eye, and then everything shut down three weeks later. Um, so I would say for me, Star, my first girl was an incredible, you know, first match, even though it didn't work out um, for not being a dog person, not growing up with dogs. She was easy to bond with happy-go-lucky, no pressure. But then city and college life were too much for her. Um, and then she became the perfect pet and still is kicking with an old L&M instructor of mine um, at the age of 12. And then I moved on to Jordan six months later in between in the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college. And I had to work a lot harder for the bond with Jordan. Um he, it took, like others have said, it can take six months, a year, a year plus. It took a year plus for Jordan to be fully bonded with Jordan. Um, he was stubborn, um, kind of like Melissa was saying. I mean, he literally escaped from me on two different occasions and ran in the building to my, his instructor. He was just that kind of dog. But once he gave in um, and stopped challenging me, um, he was my boy. Um, and he was, I'd say, the match of a lifetime. Um he had lymphosarcoma when he was four and beat that and kept working for five more years and then suddenly got sick and I didn't get to retire him like I had planned because um, he down 
took a bad turn for about six weeks. So um, I think after that, um, there was a, a lot of guilt, even though, you know, I did everything that I could for him and having to make those decisions as hard as they were. Um, but then eventually gratitude for his life and like everyone has been talking about what we keep going back to, what these dogs give to us and what we give to them and all the kind of lives they impact. Um, so then I had about six months between Jordan and now Cato. Um, and I expected the bond with Cato in February, 2020 to come to be a lot harder, just coming off of, you know, my second, but sort of my first guide dog in that sense, since my first didn't work out. Um, and Honestly, Kata was much easier to bond with. He's kind of this fun-loving bond of the two of, you know, loves physical affection, plays hard, works hard. Um, and so it was easier in class. He, it was kind of the opposite. I expected a lot of pressure and a lot of challenges, but it was fun. Um, and I think I was in a better place than I expected to be. I think coming home, you know, then you have three weeks and the pandemic hits and everything's shut down is where the challenges have come. I mean, we've had time to spend all of the time together and get to know him. But I think one point that I wanted to make that I've come across with talking with friends and classmates and everything, um, I think sometimes that trust and that bond comes um, in the big moments when you're working with a new dog, whether it's in that first month or six year, first year. Um and maybe with the pandemic, those big moments haven't quite come. You know, you haven't gotten to do that big trip or big vacation or go through a New York City or something. Um, and so that's hard, you know, to are you full to find that trust and create those moments. But I've realized that um, those moments are going to they still come and just on a smaller scale if you're limited during the pandemic. And um to be patient and those moments will come. I mean, for me, I was in a stadium for the first time two weeks ago and Kato did amazing. And, um, you know, even though like others have said, they are so resilient. And even if we don't feel that we're there yet, their instincts and their training will always come back. And it's just awesome to be able to be here and witness that. Um, so I think, I just wanted to make that point because I know a lot of others are have trained with or before the pandemic and <laughs> as much as this has impacted us, it also has impacted our dogs. Um, but we're all resilient just as they are. Um, Rose, I just want to give you yep. a five minute, warning. five minute warning. I was just about to say it. I was okay. cutting myself off. All right. So <laughs> any other last points before we, uh, from any of our panel? This is Mike. Yeah. I like, couple quick things i was just going to say uh at first i wanted to bounce a little bit off of something bob was saying earlier about your dog liking you and i think that's a very important point that we may not necessarily think about and one that you know when i was at guiding eyes it was told to me it's it's very important you it's as dumb as it sounds you in essence you really do want your dog to like you you know, because the more he, <laughs> the more your your dog likes you, the more he's inclined to want to work and, and do things for you. So, uh, you know, that, that's why I, I think this, this is an extraordinarily important topic. Um, and I would say, you know, to anyone who, who has a guide dog or is considering getting a guide dog, you know, if you don't if you don't feel like you're bonding with your dog on a 
on all the levels you feel like you should be, you know, that that's just as an important of an issue, if not the most important issue, you should really be reaching out to your school, you know, to work on techniques because it, it could, you know, having that bond could lead to better work in other respects. So down the road, you know, it's like a, I consider it a, a root cause in a lot of ways to, to probably some other things that may happen with the pe- people and their dogs that I've seen before. So, you know, it's just that you got to have that bond and that trust and, and quite frankly, the, the likability. So. Very true. Thank you, Mike. Um, Cameron or Lauren, anything that we touched on, I can give you like a minute if there's anything else you wanted to add um, before we get to door prizes. I don't think we'll have time for questions. I apologize, everyone. So this is Cameron. I just wanted to say thank you all for sharing those experiences. Um, I think I am not a guide dog user. I am a guide dog mobility instructor. I train the dogs. I work with the clients. So I can never feel the raw emotion that you guys do with your guide dogs because it is such a unique bond. So I just wanted to say thank you guys for sharing those. And yeah, just thank you. It it shows a lot on what that relationship can be between you guys. And it also shows that every relationship is very different. So thank you guys for being here today and letting us present. Yeah, thank you. Thank very you. good presentation, I thought. I thought it was a lot of very All good right. points. So, yeah. Got that door prize going? Yep, I am pulling up the participant list right now. Sorry. Uh, okay. Marianne, give me a number. I'm going to look at their participant um, or the and other I can't side. see it, so I'll give you um, a number between one and whatever. Um, what's the, how, many per- how many participants do we have? Does anybody? So hear? I'm going to look on the audience side, I think. You have 22. Then- 22. Here's a number between one and 22. It's 11. 11. Abby Dively. All right. Perfect. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Abby, we will get your. Oh, um, we will Chewy get your or, or, Chewy or Amazon Prime gift card. If you have a preference, let us know now. Otherwise, we will find, one get in touch you. with you next week. <laughs> or pick Abby, it for you. you can unmute. Well, we must have her contact. That's all right. Info. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get in touch with her. We'll contact okay. her. That's yep, fine. And you will get that prize from us next week. Thank you all again um, for your time. I think we all enjoyed this and it was a definitely necessary topic. Um, if you're interested in joining Pennsylvania guide dog users and supporters, you can contact me. My name is Rosemary Martin. Uh, my email and phone number in the po- program. Um, and we have a listserv as well as we meet bi-monthly on the even month, second Wednesday of the month. So that next meeting will be October 13th at 7.30 p.m. And if you're interested in joining, give me a call or call the office and we'll get you in touch or if you just want to be another guest at another meeting. Um, Anything else I missed, guys? I think we're good. Great job. Good deal. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great conference. Thank you. Thank you all. Wonderful presentation. Before um, we get started with our next presentation, I want to thank the Golden Triangle Council of the Blind for being a Um, community advocate, advocate sponsor, and underwriter um, for this next presentation, which is Enabling the Deaf Community. And it is being presented by two two wonderful ladies, Melissa Hawkins, who is the director for the Office of Deaf, Blind, and Hard of Hearing, 
under um, the labor and industries. Melissa graduated from the Pennsylvania State University with a bachelor's degree in behavioral science. Her graduate studies included coursework at, I'm going to butcher this, Gallaudet University, as well as George Washington University. She graduated from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University with a dual master's of science in human resources and adult learning and adult learning and has earned a certificate in competence and confidence partners in policymaking from Temple University. If I got any of that wrong, Melissa, I apologize. Um, Our other presenter in this segment will be Jessica Adams, who is the COO of Deafstone Services, Inc. She has worked as a national certified and PA registered sign language um, interpreter for the past 21 years. God bless you. Advocating alongside the deaf and deafblind and hard of hearing communities is something she recognizes as as paramount and is extremely passionate about. So without further ado, I would like to um, turn this over to Melissa and Jessica, and we thank you for being here. Thank you. So my name is Jessica Adams, and I am the COO of Deafstone Services, which is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We are a recently established nonprofit organization, and all of our board members are deaf, deaf blind, or hard of hearing. Um, So they tell me what to do, and I'm happy to do it. We all work together, um, but we are proud to say we're deaf run and have community members on the board. Um, We have three major programs that we're providing right now, such as supported employment for deaf, deaf, blind, and hard of hearing individuals, as well as senior citizen services and our SSP, the support service provider services that Melissa and I are here to talk about today. Um, So just to echo the introduction, I do want to say a personal thank you to the Golden Triangle Council of the Blind. Um, They have supported Deafstone directly, uh, monetarily, and that has allowed us to provide um, some additional free hours of support service provider hours to individuals. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, Um, but they also are the reason that Melissa and I are here. So, um, Melissa, did you want to add anything? Um, no, I think you're good. I think you, uh, I'll just talk a little bit about ODHS really quickly to give you a background for what the Office of Deaf and Hard of Hearing does. Um, as given in my introduction, which you did really well, actually, um, we are an office under labor in industry. Um, we are kind of currently housed and with OVR, but we are by law, which is Act 37, we cannot duplicate OVR services. So there is no employment goal with our office. So we serve everybody within the Commonwealth who is deaf, hard of hearing, um, and or deaf blind. And um, our, our services are free for any um, Commonwealth individual. We provide information and referral if you need any kind of information for us. And we provide advocacy as well. 
Another thing our office does is we provide um, administration oversight for X57, which is the interpreter law uh, for Pennsylvania. This requires interpreters who are um, serving or interpreting in Pennsylvania to be registered within our office. It sounds really complicated, but it's very important for people who are getting interpreters to have a qualified interpreter providing these services, especially in medical or mental health areas or in a court of law. Uh, they need to be AOPC certified. That's another act, but it still aligns with my office very well. Now, one thing to be very clear about what my office says is we do not provide case management. Um, that's something, obviously, that's very very needed in the community, but um, we we try to guide people as best as we can to an appropriate agency that does provide that. There are very few case management programs in Pennsylvania that serve the deaf, hard of hearing, or deafblind, so we do as much as we can, but case management is a little bit more intensive. So um, anyway, that's um, my office in a nutshell. There are Four of us that serve the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and that is definitely not enough. So we are often stretched very thin, and we but we do accept an email or call that we get. If um, we do make sure we return and the call or the email, excuse me, and we um, help with however we can. Right now, we're seeing a lot more issues with. Um, emergency preparedness or um, and unemployment since they switched over to a new program. So um, all, all myself and my staff were kind of like doing 500 things at once sometimes, but you know, if you call our office for help, I can pretty much guarantee that somebody will always respond and assist you. And if that's not happening, then I personally want to hear for it, by the way. So um, I think that that's a pretty good overview of both of our agencies. Oh, I'm so sorry. I did leave out a really, really important one. We now have the funding for the SSP program through the Commonwealth. So I guess that's a little bit about what brought us here today. So Jess, did I miss something my office does since I'm so busy? No, that was great. Do you want me to start talking about what an SSP is? Absolutely. Okay. So as we've mentioned, an SSP is a support service provider. This is not an aide. This is not a caretaker. This is an individual who provides visual and environmental information to a person who is deafblind. There are individuals with varying degrees of hearing loss and varying degrees of vision loss. So if people, they take their canes or their guide dogs, however they get around, they have an SSP with them. And suppose someone wants to go grocery shopping. Um, you're, the deafblind individual has their grocery list. They know what they need, what they would like. And the SSP guides them around the store. Um, if there's a long line of people or a bunch of people crowding around um, an exhibit, um, or a special stand, the SSP would relay that information to the deafblind individual. There's a sale on a special kind of drink and people are grabbing it off the shelves. So then that deafblind individual has the information and the opportunity to make a decision if they want to go over and grab one of these special sodas that everybody else is going nuts over or no, they don't like soda. They want to go get their bananas or whatever they would like. So it's just a person who gives, again, this deafblind individual information so they can make their own decisions. 
Um, it's difficult to know the difference between a can of peas or a can of corn. They feel the same, and deaf-blind individuals don't always have the same access to the apps that have sound attached to them. So there are SSPs who use tactile sign language with some deafblind individuals. There are also SSPs who speak um, to other deafblind individuals. Sometimes they have a little bit of hearing with their hearing aids or cochlear implants. So they are a person who can speak directly into a deafblind person's ear at the volume that they need to have the information. Sometimes technology isn't always what a person needs, surprisingly. Um, so other things that SSPs can do is read mail for an individual. A lot of people like to go clothing shopping. Um, they are guided to, they say, take me to where the tank tops are. But I guess this time of year, we're going to start shopping for sweaters and turtlenecks. Um, so they can say, hey, I need something that's blue. So the SSP would guide them to racks with blue sweaters or long sleeve shirts. And then the deafblind person can feel them and the SSP can describe if there are polka dots or stripes or if it's a solid color. Um, so it's just, again, access to the information around you. I can't tell you um, how many people don't have that or take that for granted. Um, again, SSPs do not do things for the deafblind individual. They will not take their laundry and take it to the washer and dryer and separate it into light and dark colors and wash it for them yeah. and come back and fold it. Um, they will assist the deafblind person, say this is dark, this is light, but the deafblind person has to separate it on their own. The deafblind person needs to push the buttons on the machine, but the SSP is there to provide that information so they can do that on their own. Um, some We have some deafblind people that like to use SSPs for recreation. They go to parks and take walks. Some people jog. Um, some people like to do hobbies and one of those is crafting. So they need a certain color bead or they're looking for a certain kind of silk flower or a certain color. So again, SSPs can be used for errands, daily living, um, or just for fun. Um, so it's a great um, asset to have. It's a great person to have access to. And we're very excited to be a part of this program. Melissa, did you want to talk uh, briefly about the history of the funding? Because you had mentioned that we now have funding, which is exciting. Yes, absolutely. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. I love talking about funding. So um, originally, if you will, if you want to go back, just to touch briefly on the history. Um, SSP Pennsylvania came about from the Statewide Independent Living Council. So they wrote deaf-blind SSP support service providers into their Statewide Independent Living Plan. Uh, that was a five-year plan that included the SSPs. Now, the original goal from that plan was to ensure that it was sustainable and it had funding. So they contracted out, um, and after five years, unfortunately, the project did not achieve the planned deliverables, including the sustainability. So the pilot project was actually discontinued in 2019 at the end of the contract. But based on the recognized and the need identified by other stakeholders, um, OVR, the governor's office, and ODHH, uh, the governor's office actually directed general government operation funds, it's kind of known as TGO funding, to give ODHH 
funding in actually 2020, kind of at the end of 2020, the talking came about to reevaluate the program's attempt and deployed a new initiative. And that's where the RFP was developed for the continuation and expansion of statewide SSP services for Pennsylvanians who are deafblind. So because we didn't want an interruption in services, I'm trying to, trying to say everything, but I condense it just a little bit. Because we didn't want any condensation um, interruption of services, we were able to very somehow quickly, and I use the word quickly loosely because it didn't seem very quickly, but when you work for the Commonwealth, things do not move quickly. Put together two emergency purchase orders to make sure that um, programs were put in place to get SSP services off the ground and running. Now, Deathstone was selected and Keystone, I know that sounds odd that we have all these stones, but that's how it worked out. Deathstone on the western side of the state and Keystone in the eastern side of the state. Um, it was easy to recognize that one agency using two, doing something statewide can be a challenge. So having an office in the western side of the state and an office in the eastern side of the state seems like more of a feasible goal for us. Um, it has not been without its challenges a little bit because this is new. Everything's new. And if we're working to improve something, there's always going to be trial and error. But with the funding that we got, um, we were very pleased. My office is funded by the JGO funding as well. And if you, um, it doesn't come directly from OVR. But again, if you go back and listen from where my office is placed right now, we are an extension of OVR and we're housed in there. But the funding is very, very separate from OVR, and it's a very big misconception. If any funding came directly from OVR, then there would be that employment goal, and probably the majority of SSPs do not have an employment goal, which is fine. Um, excuse me. So to that aspect, what has developed with these purchase orders in place is the development of an RFP right now. Just I'm kind of like, kind of groove into the current situation in Pennsylvania right now. So hop on whenever you feel like I'm missing something or anything. Excuse me. So there was an RFP that was put out in, depending on who you ask, at some point in August, and given the opportunity to apply for the western side and the eastern side or both. And the application period has passed and is under evaluation right now. Um, pretty much why it's being evaluated and decisions are being made. We really much can't speak to it because it's um, procurement and evaluation period. Beyond that, it's confidential. And it's very drawn out process, which I'm sure Jess can speak to her frustrations with because she's always asking me questions about it. I have to tell her I can't speak to it. But once we do get the contracts and everything in place, we will have an, an actual SSP program up and running on both sides of the state, and it will no longer be a purchase order. It will be an actual program. And the program will be good for one service year with option to renew. So um, one of the requirements of this program is to have SSP spoken with significant training, and we have contracted with Shannon Wright, who is absolutely phenomenal about conducting this training. She's not only um, a certified um, interpreter, but she is just reminding me of another qualification. I'm blanking on it at the moment. Certified orientation and mobility specialist. Thank you. Thank you. But she is phenomenal, and she leads um, SSPs or um, 
free free certified SSP is over um, a significantly challenging training for two days. Uh, we've had to do these trainings virtual for the past couple of months, but as we ease out of the pandemic and COVID, or we're hoping we are, we'll be holding um, final trainings for those who did the virtual training in person and hosting more trainings at Hubbings to make sure we can grow our um, certified SSPs. Now, there really is no actual standard or certification for SSPs, so this is something that Shannon has developed on her own, but many, many states look to this type of a training as a standard, and I hope the direction that we're moving in is for there to become a national standard for SSPs, and I certainly hope that with um, people like Just and Deathstone, organizations, excuse me, like Deathstone, and um, dedication of trainers like Chen and Wright that Pennsylvania would become at the forefront forefront of um, SSP programs. So I think I kind of apologize for my rambling on a little bit there, but Jess, is there anything else that I missed or anything that you wanted to add? No, I was just going to kind of talk about where DevStone is at right now. You had mentioned that we're all waiting for this RFP, the request for proposal to be granted. Can I talk a little bit about what we're doing currently? Yes, absolutely. So as Melissa said, funding for this year is under an emergency purchase order, which is great because as she mentioned, services were quote unquote not interrupted. Um, and I say quote unquote because like she mentioned, the government does not move fast, but um, they were able to get things going within two weeks of the, the new year, which is amazing for the government. Um, for the community, it's not that great because it was confusing, but we've worked through it. And uh, today I would like to ask all of your help in continuing to grow this program because you all know who could take advantage of this program. It's free to join. You just need to have hearing loss and vision loss. Um, there is a specific definition the state has that I'd be happy to send information to anybody. Melissa has information too. Um, but if you have hearing loss and vision loss, you contact me at DeafStone. I take down some basic information like your name, phone number, address, what county you're in. Um, we serve um, the entire state of Pennsylvania under the emergency purchase order currently it is Deafstone on the west half of Pennsylvania and Keystone on the east half. Um, we are waiting for decision for the RFP. Hopefully Deafstone will be able to continue to provide services. We're waiting to hear. But until then, we're just going to keep uh, providing services as normal until we're told to stop. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you yourself have hearing and vision loss, um, or you know someone who does have that, um, please have them reach out. Um, my phone number is 412-616-0400, and my email is jadams, A-D-A-M-S, at deathstone, D-E-A-F, S-T-O-N-E dot org dot O-R-G. Um, and I'm happy to send information if you need it in Word or a PDF, if you need large print in the body of an email, or if you just prefer to talk to me on the phone. I'm very flexible. Just let me know what you need, and I'm happy to get it to you in that format. 
But please let people know about this program. Um, we would like to have as many people as possible. And we always need SSPs. We have hearing SSPs and we have deaf SSPs. Um, the deaf people usually work with those who are culturally deaf blind and use the tactile sign language. Um, we have some interpreters that also work as an SSP, not at the same time, um, but that would be like myself. I am a certified sign language interpreter, but I also have gone through the training and I am able to provide SSP services. So again, I don't do them at the same time, but I am also able to work with individuals who prefer tactile sign language communication. I'm learning the pro-tactile way to communicate. Um, and then again, we have individuals who rely on spoken English. So we really need people of all ages and um, all walks of life to help us and be SSPs. They get paid. Um, the deafblind individuals as participants of this program receive up to 10 hours a month free to do um, anything like I mentioned, grocery shopping, pay bills, uh, read the mail, um, exercise, recreation. We have people that go swimming, um, whatever you would like to do. Um, the sky's the limit, I like to say, because I really hope it is. Um, we'll find a way to get things done. But just realize that there are limitations, like I said, with the SSP program. We don't clean for you. We clean with you. We don't go grocery shopping for you. You can't give us a list and wait in the car for us. You got to go with us. Um, so it's really just, it's a nice, it's a nice teamwork. It's a nice connection. I personally enjoy doing it. I've met so many amazing people. Um, you may hear the term SSP, Support Service Provider, referred to in other states as a co-navigator. It's very similar, but has slightly different roles to it. But that's just another term that you may hear, co-navigator or SSP. Um, so that's what I wanted to mention is that we really need help contacting deafblind individuals and individuals who are willing to be SSPs. Um, as Melissa mentioned, we will have trainings. Um, they have trainings. Um, we hope to provide ongoing support. We're here to answer questions. I'm really excited about this program. I don't know if you can tell, but I really enjoy being a part of it, and I'm excited to watch it grow. So Ladies, I know we only have I'm sorry. Your enthusiasm is amazing, and it sounds like a wonderful program. I just wanted to give you the alert that you're about five minutes out in case you want to take questions. That's exactly where I was going. Oh, Thank you. You're Perfect welcome. timing. If anybody has any questions, um, Melissa and I would love to know what you would like to know more about this program, what we can answer for you. Jessica, um, my question is, <laughs> is there a limit to how many hours of SSP services a person can get? And then also, um, the people who you're looking to become SSPs, do they need to know sign language? Excellent question. Um, right now with the funding, each deafblind participant gets 10 hours per month. That starts over on the first of every month. So 10 hours would be the limit. And then as I mentioned at the very beginning, thanks to organizations such as the Golden Triangle Council of the Blind, they have given DeafStone a direct donation that DeafStone is able to use that funding. If people use up all 10 hours and they really need to go grocery shopping or 
you know, they really, really need to do something, then we have that funding where we can say, yes, we can send you an SSP for another hour or two. It's so nice to not have to turn people away. So we really rely on donations to be able to provide the service. And then SSPs, they do not need to know sign language. It's a plus, it's a bonus, but as I also mentioned, some people rely on spoken English. So um, I work with a lot of people that I just speak to. Um, so no, you do not need to know sign language to be an SSP. Area code 510. Jessica, um, what does SF, I mean, SSP stand for again? Um, um, that would be and, support uh, service provider. Uh -huh. And that way for both blind and deaf people, correct? Well, it, Jess, do you want to take this one? Sure. Um, thank you, Todd. Yes, you have to be both deaf and blind. You have to have some level of hearing loss and some level of vision loss. It's not for one or the so other. You, you need to have both. Oh, 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 all right. That's what I wanted to know. Thank you. You're welcome. Is there someone we can send uh, Melissa and my contact information to to share with everybody here on the conference? We actually have all of that. Um, Jessica, oh, and um, anyone who wants their um, information, their phone numbers and email addresses can call the office at 717-920-9999 at or toll free at 877, I'm going to get this wrong, 617-7407. I think I got it right. So um, Melissa's and Jessica's contact is, information can be available to you just by calling our office. Thank you, ladies, so Thank much. you so much. No, thank you. You were wonderful. And if you have time, you do have one more hand. We have about a minute. Okay, Kathy. Great presentation. My question is, what about transportation? If you're going to the grocery store, um, does the SSP pick up the person, or do they need to provide their own transportation? Great question. Melissa, do you want to answer that, or do you want me to take it? Okay, so we'll both answer this one a little bit. So right now with the emergency purchase orders, it does not provide um, reimbursement for transportation. Okay, so that's what, right now, that's where we are with the emergency purchase orders. But due to liability issues and other concerns that the Commonwealth has. Now going forward with the status of IAP and other things, we'll see where that takes us. But with where we are at this current place, the funding is not reimbursable. And this is Jessica. I just wanted to agree with that. Currently, we're not able to be paid from the state for travel. Um, but um, based on whoever gets the new contract, the request for proposal, the bid moving forward, hopefully um, they would be able to incorporate travel into the program because that is a big struggle. Um, if we're waiting for access or another form of transportation, it usually takes a long time which takes up the SSP hours. Um, so those 10 hours don't last very long. I realize it's really not enough. So we're trying to work um, out the legalities of including travel just to make sure everyone is appropriately covered, everyone is safe and no one is risking anything. Thank you ladies so much for your presentation and your time and your enthusiasm and bringing clarity to this subject. Um, we're, um, PCB thanks you, we're very appreciative. I think we have a promo, Doug, from Sight for Hope. We do, and here it is. Thank you. 
Sites for Hope empowers people with visual impairments in Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley and Monroe County to thrive through skills education, guided transportation, specialized technologies, individualized support services, free vision screenings for children and youth programming, and prevention education programs. We are so excited to kick off the 2021-2022 service year with your support. For more information, please connect with us online at www.sitesforhope.org. Our next presentation of sorts is um, a pre-recorded gadget gallery. Um, Your peers have um, put together um, a gadget gallery of their favorite um, gadgets, cooking gadgets, other types of um, home use gadgets, and it should be um, not just informative, but entertaining because we tried to make it, you know, fun for all. And if there's time afterwards, um, some of us are here and we'll stay for questions. So without further ado, our sound man will just take that away. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gadget Gallery. This is Melissa Carney, PCB's Director of Outreach and Engagement. Over the next 45 minutes, you'll hear a presentation organized by PCB's Peer Engagement Team, in which our peers discuss home and kitchen appliances and techniques that have made their lives easier by enhancing independence and confidence, as well as diversifying the array of available, access-friendly options. Underwriting this presentation at the community organizer level is Tech Owl, technology for our whole life. Tech Owl is Pennsylvania's designated Assistive Technology Act program. For more information about borrowing, financing, recycling, or learning assistive technology devices, call 800-204-7428 or email techowl at temple.edu. That's T-E-C-H-O-W-L at T-E-M-P-L-E dot E-D-U. Hello, let's talk eggs and pancakes. This is Chris Hunsinger, and I have this kitchen solution for you. You know, a long time ago, we used to use tuna fish cans for egg rings. And they were about the size of an English muffin, so you could make your own English muffin egg. But we probably were contaminating ourselves with lead. Then they made metal egg rings that had cute little handles. And now they make silicone ones. And I like those much better because they don't get as hot. My standard skillet holds four easily. And if I want to do eight of something, I usually put the griddle on my stove that covers two burners. That means that I can cook as many as eight. And they're about... Two fifty to three dollars an egg ring. Usually, they comes in packs of two or four. They come in multiple colors. I got them on Amazon. I know they also make fun shapes, whether it's the state of Texas or a bunny rabbit or hearts because you love someone or whatever. All those things are available to you. What I do is I heat my pan, put the fat in, and then once the pan's hot enough, I put the egg rings in to get the bottom edge of them a little bit warm. And then I put my product in. It could be eggs or it could be pancakes or some other runny item that I want to keep in one place or at least in a place. They're about four inches across and mine are designed so that it's a circle that's maybe an inch and a half high and the bottom part or one part of it is a little narrower 
than the other side. So therefore, I tend to put eggs in with the narrower side at the bottom, and I do pancakes with the wider side at the bottom because pancakes rise. And so when they go past the little ridge where it gets narrower, it's easier to knock them off the egg rings. If you do it the other way, they get stuck sometimes. Once they're cooked enough, I then slide the spatula under them. They have a cute little handle that I make sure is sticking up when I start everything. I can grab the little handle while the spatula is under them, pull the egg ring off the item, sort of make sure that the item didn't stick to it, and then I sling the egg ring into the sink and turn my product over. So I have to do that process, you know, four or eight times, depending on what I'm cooking there. Keeps the items in order and makes them a nice uniform size. So my pancakes all look similar instead of looking like they're running across the pan and broken into several pieces. I'm sure most cooking stores sell these. They also sell metal ones still with little handles, but those get hot. They get as hot as the skillet, and if you're using your fingers to figure out what you're doing, that can get a little bit tricky. My name is Melissa, and I'll be talking to you about the Ninja Foodie 9-in-1 pressure cook, broil, dehydrate, slow cooker, air fryer, and more. I'll start by describing the appliance to you. Essentially, it's a tall circular object with a lid that opens to the left if it's facing you. And inside, you'll find a non-stick pot that you'll be using for all of your cooking. There are a couple different racks and an air frying basket that can be placed in the pot for things like air crisping, steaming, broiling, etc., but mainly you'll be using this pot. This pot and all of its other associated racks can be taken out of the foodie, and those are the components that can be washed in the sink with a soap and sponge. You cannot place any of these in the dishwasher. However, you can let them air dry on a drying rack. In the back of the appliance, you can find the power cord, and when you plug it in, it'll sound something like this. That will let you know that you've successfully connected the appliance to power. In front of the appliance, you'll find all the function buttons, temperature, time, power, etc. to control the device. So I'll start from the top. In your top left corner, you have the buttons that control temperature. Now I should mention that all of these buttons for each function, time, temperature, power, etc. are all indented so that you can feel as a visually impaired person where each button is located. For easier use, I've placed a single braille letter on each function to identify it. So as I was saying, you have your temperature control buttons higher and lower in the top left corner. In the top right corner, you have the buttons that control time. So you wouldn't use these buttons for something like saute, but you could use them and you have to use them for functions like air frying or pressure cooking. Pressure cooking is the only function that's kind of difficult to stop once you start, so it's really key to set that time beforehand. Most of these functions have preset times and temperatures, so you just want to write those down, memorize them, record them, or whatever you need to do to make sure that you know the default settings once you select a certain function. Now, let's start with the fun buttons. These are the function buttons that you'll select when choosing how you want to cook your meal. So, there are two rows of buttons. So I'll start on the top row going left to right. So first you have pressure, then you have steam, slow cook, and saute. On the bottom row, from left to right, you have air crisp or air fry. 
bake, broil, and dehydrate. Now, I'll explain briefly what each function does. Pressure cook is valuable when you're trying to cook pasta. So what you do, and this is just a very basic example, you put your pasta into the pot that comes with the Ninja Foodi, insert that pot into the device, just place it down, and then you want to submerge all of the pasta in water. This is very important. If you don't submerge all the pasta in water and stir it up and make sure that pasta is saturated, you could burn the noodles or they might come out crispy and not how you want them. So it's always better to have a little more water than too little water. Once you add those components to the pot, all you have to do is assemble the pressure lid. This comes separately. It is not the same as the lid that is attached to the foodie. So this has a rubber seal on it that allows the device to build up pressure and cook your noodles and whatever else you're making in that pot just using heat and pressure. So once you assemble that, you just twist it on. And then based on the cooking instructions that you have for your particular recipe, you'll see a little vent on top in the back of the pressure cooking lid. If you have it to the left, that means that it's sealed. So that's what most recipes call for. If you're trying to slow cook something and you want to vent some of the steam out and you're not trying to pressure cook, you want that valve to the right. That's the venting position. And likewise, if you are finished pressure cooking and you're ready to release that steam, and some recipes have different release instructions, then you simply flip that vent and that valve from the sealed position to the vent position. So that's flicking it to the right to release all that steam. So that's pretty straightforward. And you'll find out which recipes require pressure cooking, which would be better suited for it, and which won't. Now, let's move on to the rest of the other functions. So steam is pretty self-explanatory. You can use that for your veggies, either with or without the rack, whatever your recipe calls for. And there are tons of recipes that are specific to the foodie or the Instant Pot that can apply to both appliances. Then, of course, you have your slow cook, again, pretty self-explanatory. Your saute, that's basically the same thing as if you were using a stove and cooking your meal in a pot or pan. It's the same thing. It has the same desired effect. So you can cook your sauce in there. You can cook your chopped meat, your chicken breast, whatever you're trying to make that you could traditionally make on a stove, you can make with the saute function. I use that probably the most often followed by the pressure cooking and air crisp options. So speaking of air crisp, going down to that next row, the air crisp function, bake and broil, all use the lid that is attached to the foodie. So based on what function you select, and after you close that lid, the lid will control the airflow that's going into the meal and the type of heat that it's getting. So obviously the air crisp is releasing that heat that kind of, you know, either melts cheese, crispens up potatoes, whatever you're trying to make, that's the function of that button. Bake and broil, again, just different types of heat. I mostly use bake for if I'm making a pot pie and I'm trying to solidify the crust on top and make that nice and crunchy. The broil I use for pork chops and steak 
And it works similarly as if you were grilling it. So you would start by cooking the meat on one side and then flipping it over and broiling it on the other side. And that comes out deliciously. Now, the last function is dehydrate. And I'll be the first to admit that I have not messed around with that function that much. But I've heard very great things about it. I know people who have made beef jerky in the foodie, people who have dehydrated fresh basil to use for later in the foodie. So that can be a very useful function, and I hope to experiment more with it in the future. Now, the last buttons on the bottom, I symbolize these with S for start and P for power, are those start and power buttons. So you'll find start on the left, and again, these are still indented. And then you'll find power on the right, which I symbolize with a P. So when you press power, you'll hear that double beep, just like you heard when plugging in the device. This will also signify when the power has been turned on. It does not make a sound when you turn it off. So only when you turn it on, which is super helpful to know that your device is ready to go. Now quickly, I'm just going to demonstrate what the process would be if you're trying to saute something because that's one of the more universal functions that this foodie has. And that might be the one that you'd like to experiment with first because it's so similar to working on a traditional stove. Now, let's pretend as if I just plugged in the foodie. I'm gonna press the power button. And then all you have to do from there for the saute function is select that function. So you press it. Okay, and then you need to press start. So that's that button in the bottom left under the function buttons. So now it usually defaults to high and I'll show you what you wanna do if you're trying to change the temperature. So remember the temperature buttons are in the top left corner and what you'll do is you'll press the down button to lower the temperature once, that'll take it down to medium high then you'll press it again. So this is a nice little safety feature, so you always have to press it twice to enable the function. And as you just heard, what it will do when the temperature has officially been set and changed, you'll hear a double beep, similar to that of when you plug the foodie in or turn the power on. So I will show you that one more time. Okay, now we're turning it down to medium. Okay, and just like that, you'll hear that double beep that signifies that the change has gone through. Now, just keep in mind that this heats up a little faster than the traditional stove. It depends on the type of model you have of stove, but typically you're going to see this heat up pretty fast. A lot of recipes say that you should preheat the saute function for about five minutes, and then it's ready to go. Or you can just throw your ingredients in there if you're trying to cook meat and just let it do its thing and preheat with the meat in there. So it really depends on what you're going for. But just be careful, it does get hot. The bottom, of course, will always be the hottest of the pot that's in the foodie. But you'll have to be careful of the edges as well. Those can heat up and the entire pot becomes pretty hot. However, if you're trying to orient yourself, remember that the foodie and the outside components where the buttons are, those will always remain cool. So as long as you're not feeling too deep into the interior and touching the edge of those pots, you should be fine. And just like a traditional stove, you'll feel the steam coming off of it. You'll know when it's hot and you'll be able to take the proper precautions. Now I'll do one more additional quick demo for all of you listening. So this function I'm going to perform now is the air crisp, just so you can see what that sounds like. 
So again, I'm going to press the power button. Okay, you hear the, that double beep. I'm going to press air crisp. And I wanted to show you what that button means. That means there's an error. That lower pitched beep, that. That means there's an error. So what that means is you probably haven't closed the lid yet. So that's great for reminding you that you need to do that. So that being said, we're going to close the lid. And you heard that. That's basically your success. You did it. You're ready to go. So now you can press the air curse button and then you press start and it'll sound a little like this. And that's about it. So now there's a bunch of hot air that's filtering out and that'll fry whatever you have in there. Okay, and if you want to cancel it, if you decide that you'd rather set an old-fashioned timer on your Lady A or whatnot, you can just let it run, and then when you believe you're all set, you can press power. If you're not sure, you can lift the lid to the left, and that'll actually stop the air frying function automatically. So say you're not sure if your fries are crispy enough. You can lift that lid, and you can carefully use a fork or a wooden spoon, whatever you'd like, to kind of feel those fries and make sure they're the texture that you want. You can even pick one up with a fork and feel it with your fingers. Whatever your comfort level is, you have that option to stop. That's the same with the bake and broil functions as well. So again, you don't have to use the foodie timer for those functions. You can use your own timer and then just lift the lid to check it once that timer goes off. That's especially helpful if you're trying to cook one side of the meat and flip it over to make sure that that's ready to go. And I think that's about it. Please feel free to let me know if you have any questions. I'm always happy to talk about the foodie. I'm always happy to share recipes and talk about the type of meals you can make in the foodie. I love this device. I think it's extremely accessible to a completely blind person, and it has changed my life. It's made cleanup a lot easier for having the ability to cook all my meals just in one pot, maybe using one or two extra racks. But that way you're not dealing with always transferring food from one pan to another or even cooking your your sauce separately from your noodles. There's a lot of pasta recipes where you can cook it all in one. So this has made a huge impact on my life and I hope it'll make a huge impact on yours. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day. Hello, Sue Lickenfels here to tell you about a device that I have found to be very useful in my home. It's called a kitschy pizza cutter wheel. And Kitschy is spelled K-I-C-H-Y. And we found this on Amazon for $9.99. What's interesting about this is that it doesn't look like a normal pizza cutter. A normal pizza cutter has the round wheel with a handle on it. And then your hand is about three to four inches away from the actual blade and even further away from the pizza. And this cutter, I'll let you hear it. It's a round blade, of course, made of stainless steel. But right now, it's totally enclosed in a plastic case. And the case is round, and it has a removable cover that actually slides back from half of the blade. So let me do that, and you can hear that sound. Here it goes, opening. 
and then it clicks into position so that it stays wide open when you're cutting the pizza. And then you hold on to the other half. The blade is now exposed, so you're going to hold on to the other half of the cutter, and there is a rubber grip there. And essentially, you're holding on to the other half of the blade, which is in this plastic covering. So when you are cutting something, your hand is literally right there at the blade, and you can press down directly on the blade. For me, it's much better because it gives me the leverage that I need to cut things much more easily. And it gives me better control when I have to go back and forth making a cut. I've always gone outside the lines, if you will, when I've got to go back and forth to make a cut through a surface. This is actually three pieces that can be all detached, and this is dishwasher safe. I've used it to actually cut pie. You could use it to cut cookie bars, cut brownies, to cut fudge. It can be useful in many different ways. I like it also because while it's keeping your hand close to the work, it's protecting your hand because of that grip that's over that other half of the blade. As I said, it's all dishwasher safe. And when you're done using it, you're just going to close it back up. And everything is covered now. You can put it in your drawer and you won't have to worry about slicing a finger when you go to reach in the drawer looking for this utensil. So, I hope you find it if you're looking for it, and I hope it is as helpful to you as it is to our family. Good luck. Hello, everyone. I'm Suzanne Erb, and I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to my air fryer. And it's advertised as being air fryer, healthy, oil-free cooker. Of course, that's really not true because you do need to use a little bit of oil, but not the huge amount of oil that you need to use if you're using a deep fryer. Another thing I like about this air fryer is that it's very safe to use. Once the stuff that you're cooking is inside the basket and the basket is inside the tray, you shut the door and you turn the temperature and timer all you need to do is watch it, watch the timer as it moves around until it gets to the end, and then you'll hear a bell ring and you'll hear it go off. And then if you need to turn it, you can do it at that time. Or if what you're cooking is something that you don't have to turn, then that makes it easy too. In the meantime, when you're doing this, make sure that you keep it in a safe place and that there's lots of room behind it because there will be air coming out of it. There's a lot of hot air involved in this cooking. And so you want to make sure that there's enough room around the device so that nothing will get hot. Of course, just like as you're making anything like fried chicken or steak or anything like that, you can also make veggies. You can also make tofu. And it's limitless, as long as you're not doing anything that is more like water-based, like a broth or something like that. You wouldn't make that in the air fryer. But there's so many things that you can make in the air fryer, and things really do taste good. Some other advantages, I think, at least for me anyway, I like the fact that it has a very nice, easy, clean finish. 
They say that you can put it in the dishwasher, but it's so easy to clean that even the holes and things and what have you in the basket are easy to clean, and I don't mind doing it. That's how easy it is. I'm going to describe it for you a little bit. The air fryer itself is about 14 inches high, and it's about 11 inches wide, and it's about 13 and a half inches in length. So it's almost square, or almost a cube, but not really, because the sides are rounded, and the top is sort of flat, but with a slant to it. And there are two knobs on top. The one on the top is the temperature knob. That doesn't make any noise when you set it, at least not much of a noise. And that you'll recognize because it has a pointer, and at the very beginning when you first get it, the pointer is at 6 o'clock. And the timer, the pointer is at 12 o'clock, and it's directly below the temperature knob. So the other feature that I like is that when it's finished, it turns itself off. Isn't that great? You don't even have to do that. So you can be in the other room writing the great American novel and just listen for the bell, and it'll turn itself off. Now I'm going to demonstrate for you. I'm not going to be able to demonstrate the motor of the air fryer, but I can tell you that it sounds very much like a microwave. So if you're familiar with the sound of the microwave, you'll know what the air fryer motor sounds like. But I can show you the timer, and the timer sounds like this. There you go. And don't worry, it's not going to go off. It does sound like it, but it is nice because it is audible. The pointer for the timer does move, and when it's over, it really will be at 12 o'clock. The information about the air fryer is that you can buy it from Blind Mice Mega Mall, and their phone number is one 866 922-8877 and again that number is 1-866-922-8877 Suggested retail price $159.99 Mice price $119.99 I'd like to say that there are many different air fryers available and each air fryer has its own unique features so make sure that you research carefully before you buy so that you know what you're getting. So, happy cooking, happy summer, and happy convention. Bye for now. Hello, this is Chris Hunsinger, and don't you hate it when something boils over on your stove and it's usually pasta or potatoes and all that starchy water gets into your burners and you have to take things apart to clean them up? Well, I know I don't always get my flame just low enough to keep them from boiling over, so I've found spill stoppers. Now, lots of people make them. I can't remember how many I saw on Amazon, but there were piles of them. 
and on QVC, both Kuhn Riken and some other company make them, and they make them in several sizes so that you can indeed have them for different size pans. The ones that I have were made by Kuhn Riken, and they look like a dinner plate with a hole in the middle, and the hole in the middle has a flower sitting in it, and the petals rise as the steam builds up inside the pan that's boiling. That lets the steam water come out onto the plate, and it sits there and doesn't boil over on the side. It just sits on the middle of the plate. So you just have a piece of silicone to clean up. They come in 10.2, 11.5, and maybe 12.5-inch sizes, depending on the size of the pans that you have. The smaller ones were like 3 for $18. The biggest ones were over $25, I think. Now, I saw one for $21.95 that looked like it was the size that I had gotten, but I got a two-pack when I got them, and I don't think I paid $40-some for them. So I really don't know what size or what the price and size are now because I don't think I could find the ones I bought. There were some on Amazon that said they had no knob in the center so you could stack them. That's good. And they had a vent and they had a silicone handle. Now, the ones I got from QVC... If you call them a silicone handle, it was more like just this little grabby thing on the edge that went out a little further. And I guess that could be called a handle on either side. And then you pop that flower off when you put them in the water to wash them. And you clean the flower and you clean the plate and you put the flower back into it and put it away in the cabinet. No more spills. Hello, peers. Fellow gadget enthusiasts, this is Marianne Grignon here to tell you about a new favorite kitchen gadget of mine. In the late 80s and 90s, when I was raising my two little girls, I was always miffed at the fact that I couldn't make them pancakes. No matter what I tried, I just could not flip those elusive blobs of liquid. Well, I'm happy to say that I have found the perfect gadget for making pancakes or Belgian waffles, and I don't have to flip a thing. It is the Cuisin Art Belgian Waffle Maker with Pancake Plates and can be purchased at Amazon for $99.99. The device is square, about 10 inches by 10 inches, with a handle set about 3 inches off the surface of the top of the top lid, so you can open and close the lid without getting burned. This device has just one knob, and that is for setting the temperature. The knob is numbered 1 to 6, with 1, of course, being the coolest setting, and 6 being the hottest. I use 4 for cooking my pancakes and 5 for cooking waffles because they're a bit thicker. You can easily place dots around the knob on the surface of the unit for tactile identification. So here's what you do. As always, I would recommend that you get organized prior to starting any cooking adventure. So, you're going to need to make your pancake or waffle batter. Have your utensils ready. You'll just need a small spatula and a pouring cup, and maybe an additional knife or fork for probing around the unit prior to pouring your batter. You'll know what I mean when I get later on in the description. So plug in your unit, decide on pancakes or waffles, and spray the appropriate plates. Just a side note, the plates are dishwasher safe, so cleanup is really easy. Then set your temperature. 
Now, just wait until the unit beeps, as it will when it gets up to temp. You're now ready to pour your batter. For this discussion, I'm going to talk about making pancakes. I use a quarter cup measuring cup, the type that nests and has an actual pour spout. Fill with batter, locate the first pancake well. I do it with my fingertips, but for the sake of safety, go ahead and use a fork or other utensil. Pour your batter into each well. There are four. Close the lid and wait for the unit to beep again. On first using this awesome device, when I first poured my pancakes, I was dismayed to see that they kind of all ran together, but fear not, they fall into perfect form while cooking. When the unit beeps again, open the lid, and with a small spatula, go ahead and slide those perfect pancakes right onto a plate. PCB family, this is Kathy Long. I have a few tips to share that makes my life easier. The first tip is for the kitchen. What if I am going to be making some chicken? I'm going to bake it. Well, before I bake it, I put down a piece of parchment paper on the cookie sheet, and that does facilitate easy cleanup. You will have to wash the sheet, but It's much cleaner when you take the meat off the parchment paper and it won't stick or anything. And then just throw the parchment paper away. It is not expensive. You can get it in any grocery store and definitely in a kitchen store. I recently bought three rolls of it for $10 at BJ's Wholesale Club. But I know you can get it at Walmart. And I think even at Walmart you can buy it by the sheet, which is really cool. My second tip is writing down a phone number when I am not in a position to write it in Braille or put it in my phone. I try to write it on my talking calculator. That's all for now. I hope this helps somebody. Have a good convention. Hello, Sue Lickenfels here. Are you tired of having to wake up to a cold house and plant your warm, cozy feet on the cold floor just to get to the thermostat? Or maybe you're like me and you're having another hot flash and you need to get to the A.C. quickly. Well, the gadget I want to tell you about can give you control of your thermostat without leaving the bed, getting up from a chair, or even being at home. It's an app called Nest. N-E-S-T. And it's available for free from either of the app stores. Now, we only use Nest for our thermostat, but it can also be used to control other smart appliances like lights and coffee makers. Now, honestly, you will need some sighted assistance to get the app first working with your device because there's a special number in the menus of your device which you're going to have to input into the app. But when I worked with our HVAC person to get our thermostat up and running, it took us less than 10 minutes to get it working. I also want to tell you that truly it's not fully accessible. For the thermostat, there's a schedule and a history options that are not accessible, or at least we haven't figured out how to make them accessible to us. 
But I would love to demonstrate for you how we use the Nest app to control our thermostat. So let's open it up. 8.37 p.m. So let's go to the app. Nest. So this is the first screen that I have open right now. And I'm just going to go through it from the top to the bottom. We'll try to do it slowly. And hopefully my speech is slow enough for people to be able to understand it. Settings. Button. Rob is currently set to home. Button. Since Rob is currently set to home, that means the thermostat believes that we are here. And so it will run as we have set it to run. Now, if we were away from the house, we could set it to away, and then it would be in an energy efficiency mode where it wouldn't run as much during the day until we set it to home again. And what's really cool is that because this is an app on our phone, we can be on our way home and get in the app and actually turn on the air conditioning so it's nice and cool by the time we get home. Or if it's a cold day, we can turn up the heat so it's nice and cozy when we get back. Okay, so that was the first thing on this screen. Target temperature is 71 degrees. Button. So the hallway thermostat temperature is 71. Okay, so let's click on that. Hallway. And this is going to be... Hallway is set to cool to 71 degrees. The current temperature is 74 degrees. Cooling. So, it's set to 71. Let's read from the top down here. Target temperature, 71 degrees Fahrenheit. Adjustable. Okay, that's our target. The current temperature is 74 degrees. Oh, it says it's 74 in here. No wonder the air conditioner is running. Well, let's see about that. Cooling. Cooling. 71. 47%. 47%. Inside humidity. Inside humidity. 79 degrees. Outside temp. 79 outside. And then also on this screen. Mode button. Mode. Now if I click on there. Set thermostat to. Heat button. Selected. Cool button. Heat and cool button. Off button. So those are all the settings. Pretty simple. We're going to go back. Back button. Hallway thermostat. Target temperature is 71 degrees. Button. Show you how easy it is to just change the temperature. One of these was an adjustable. Hallway thermostat. Target temperature is 71 degrees. Button. Hallway is set to cool to 71 degrees. The current temperature is 74 degrees. Cooling. Let's find the adjustable. Target temperature, 71 degrees Fahrenheit. Adjustable. Okay, there it is. So, let's just flick up and down here. 70 degrees Fahrenheit. 69 degrees Fahrenheit. 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. That's how you just flick down to lower it. 69 degrees Fahrenheit. 70 degrees Fahrenheit. 71 degrees Fahrenheit. Up to higher the temperature. And that is how easy it is to use this Nest app. We love it. It's become a staple in our house, honestly, because we're always hot or cold or cold or hot, like any married couple. And it's so convenient. It's just so very convenient. So, good luck if you decide to check this out. Thanks for listening. Hello. This is Chris Hunsinger. Do you bang up your knuckles when you use a box grater? Do you not want to shred things like potatoes for potato pancakes or soft cheese for anything like mac and cheese because you're going to eventually hit your knuckles and skin them? Well, I found a solution that I thought was kind of intriguing. It's called a barrel grater. It's called a barrel grater because instead of it being a box grater, it's a little round drummy looking thing that has the grater holes in it 
It goes into an enclosure that then gets a crank put on it, and it spins. There's a chute at the top where you place the items that you want to grate, and as they get grated, they come out the side, and you need to have a bowl there to catch them. It has a suction cup on the bottom of the grater so that it will stay securely on your countertop. That means that you can, with one hand, crank the little crank, and with the other hand, push the items into the grater. It comes with a plastic pusher. I got it at QVC. Some of the reviews said that they ended up with plastic from the pusher in the graded product, and I was worried about that. But when I looked at it, I saw no way that the actual pusher that they give you could possibly touch the grater blades, so I would presume that the people who said that happened weren't using the right piece of equipment. It has three barrels, one for fine grating for things like Parmesan cheese or breadcrumbs, a medium grater that looks like the shredding part of your standard box grater, and a slicing one that you can use for things like slicing potatoes for scalloped potatoes or slicing zucchini or cucumbers so that they're nice and thin and even. The suction cup on the bottom has a little knob on the side of the grater. If you wet the suction cup when it's still flat and set it on your counter and turn the little knob, It then creates a vacuum, which allows the grater to be very steady while it sits there. I didn't need to read the instructions, so I think it's fairly simple and straightforward to put together. You just have to look at how the pieces fit and put them in. You can take the whole thing apart, and everything can be washed and cleaned. I could have used my food processor, but that's a big item. And that means that I'd have to make a lot more space on my counter to use it. And it's kind of like using my big stand mixer. I usually don't pull that out when I just have a small task to perform. The company that makes it is called House to Home. It costs $16 and change, but I'm not sure if that was a sale price. And it also had shipping and handling. The item number for the product is... K47617, and I enjoy it. I hope you will too. Hello, this is Marianne Grignon, and I'm here to talk with you about a simple kitchen gadget that has allowed me to enjoy some of my favorite breakfast foods. It's called the Egg Essentials, that is spelled E G G S S E N T I A L S poached egg maker, and it can be found at Amazon for just $34.99. I've always enjoyed poached eggs and, of course, then Eggs Benedict. But, well, chasing eggs around in boiling water has never been my thing. So, I only had this delicious breakfast when at a restaurant or at my daughter Julie's. So, I was quite surprised when, for Christmas one year, Julie who also likes poached eggs, presented me with the Egg Essentials Poached Egg Maker. This is just a shallow pan that looks much like a small frying pan with a long handle. It's made of stainless steel, so it's easy to clean, and has an insert, also made of stainless steel, which is a frame for four egg cups. The egg cups have a non-stick cooking surface. Each of the egg cups has a nub of a wooden handle, 
The pan comes with a glass lid, which also has a knob of a wooden handle. Here's how it works. Fill the pan about an inch with water, just till it hits the curve of the bottom of the pan. With the frame in the pan, put it on the stove, covered, and turn your stove on for boiling water. While the water is boiling, go ahead and spray your cups with non-stick cooking spray. Then, put them on a plate so when you're cracking your eggs, you don't spill the egg liquid on the counter. Go ahead and crack an egg into each cup that you wish to use. When your water boils, remove the lid and place a cup in each of the designated holes in the frame. Turn the knobs of each cup toward the center. I recommend using a small cloth around your fingers to prevent your fingers from being burned. Put the lid back on and set your timer. I cook my poached eggs for about four and a half minutes and they turn out medium done. When the timer goes off, again, use a small cloth around your fingers and pull one cup out of the pan at a time. Just turn it onto your plate or slice of toast or English muffin, however you like your poached eggs, and you'll be amazed at how perfect these eggs are and how easily they come out of the cups. Enjoy. On behalf of the peer engagement team, we, the peers and staff of PCB, have been pleased to bring you the 2021 Gadget Gallery. We thank Tech Owl for underwriting the Gadget Gallery. Tech Owl, technology for our whole life. Tech Owl is Pennsylvania's designated Assistive Technology Act program. For more information about borrowing, financing, recycling, or learning assistive technology devices, call 800-204-7428 or email techowl at temple.edu. That's T-E-C-H-O-W-L at T-E-M-P-L-E dot E-D-U. And I want to welcome you all back to the PCB conference and convention. I'm Stu Lickenfels, our immediate past president. Uh, Chris Hunsinger has a very sick cat at home that she needed to take care of tonight. So we're giving her the night off and we hope that Tigger um, is doing well. So our first presentation is volunteering outside of the blind community. As people who are blind, we are very comfortable in our cocoons, in our community of peers. Um, and it's awfully hard sometimes to break out um, but tonight with us, um, we have some folks who have done that and who have felt comfortable volunteering outside of the blind community in the greater community. So here tonight, um, I'll let them introduce themselves once I just announce them. Um, our Art Rosino, Ellie Goldfawn, and I'm not sure if Angela has made it in yet. I did not see her on the panel side or in the audience side. So Angela, if you are here, please raise your hand. That's Angela Abovny from Pittsburgh. But um, while we're waiting for Angela, we, we will begin. Um, so Art, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, where you've done volunteer work 
and what your vision status is. You're going to need to hit your unmute button, Art. I just had to unmute myself. Good evening, everybody, and and thanks for asking me to do this, Sue. Um, My name is Art Rosino. I live in the Pittsburgh area. I do have a day job, but for me, my volunteering has become my fun. Uh, I'm currently totally blind. Um, Briefly, when I was a very young child, I did have the ability to see colors and some general shapes up close. But for most of my life, I've been totally blind. Why I volunteer? Well, uh, a couple of reasons why. Um, I like helping others and exposing slash educating people about blindness. And I also feel this is where I can give back to the community and give to others. Um, the can you tell us where you volunteer? Sure, that was I kind of the first question. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Back when I was in college, I did volunteer at the Student Orientation Services uh, at Rochester Institute of Technology, abbreviated SOS. We would plan and run the new student orientation weekends and also at the beginning of the school year when the new students would come in. I also have volunteered at um, helping Boy Scouts prepare information for their merit badges. the also the two bigger ones I've done is the Antique Motor Coach Association of Pennsylvania, which is basically a museum preserving transit bus history in Pennsylvania. And there I did a lot of mechanical work on our antique buses. And currently for the last six years, I've been very active at the Pennsylvania Trolley Museum, working in the restoration and maintenance shop, performing uh, restoration restoring of the antique streetcars and maintenance to keep them running so that our visitors can experience old-time streetcar riding. Awesome. Let's move over to Ellen Goldfond. Ellie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your vision, and where you have volunteered? My name is Ellie Goldfond, and I have um, what used to be called retrolental fibroplasia, uh, which now is called retinopathy of prematurity. Uh, yeah, retinopathy of prematurity. Um, uh, the reason that I began volunteering is, and I'm retired now, uh, was basically to gain experience in order to get employment. Uh, and it, it worked to an extent, but it mainly had a life of its own. It took on a life of its own. Um, you were wanting to know where I volunteered. The first one probably was the most interesting, uh, volunteer experience I had, And that was that I taught English as a second language to Russian immigrants, Jewish Russian immigrants in uh, 1979. And uh, so that was the first one I did. Now that I did from home. Uh, It was under the auspices, auspices, sorry about that, of the United Jewish Federation. (laughs) Okay, anyway. um, You go ahead and more recently. uh, More recently, um, would you like them from... Front to back. I I did that way back in 79. But going from the most recent thing that I've done, uh, I can tell you, uh, the most recent was uh, I volunteered for Heritage Place. And I was a resident there while I was mending from a broken ankle. So after I uh, was released, I went back and volunteered and played the piano for them, uh, the keyboard, actually, and did mostly holiday playing for them. 
And I also uh, helped with keeping score at bingo. <laughs> so that's what I did for them. Um, the rest of the volunteering is more uh, associated with much earlier, but that was the most recent. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move over to Angela. Angela, thank you. Um, and can you uh, just tell us a little bit about your vision, um, about yourself, and uh, what, what, what you're currently doing as far as volunteering? Hello, I'm Angela Hudbovny in Pittsburgh, and I'm presently um, the director of the First Trinity Homeless Ministry. Uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is at First Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church. And um, basically, I'm, I'm running it. I kind of inherited it from another person. So that's how I became the director. Um, to just go back a little bit, my visual problems stem from, like Ellie, what they used to call retrolental fibroplasia, uh, now called retinopathy of prematurity. My left eye was always totally blind. I did have some vision in my right eye, which eventually got worse, worse, and worse till I became legally blind um, after 2002. And I had some volunteer activity um, early on with, I actually volunteered for ACB when the convention was in Pittsburgh. So that was probably one of my first activities as a blind person. And then I did some things with GCTV, like sell hot dogs and those kinds of things. And I went to First Trinity Lutheran Church because they have a blind ministry. And I had heard about it and kind of hesitated and finally decided to take the plunge. And I started attending their Saturday night monthly dinners in 2004. And then finally in 2008, I ended up joining that church. And I joined and formally got received in May. And in September, another lady, Diana Pasco, decided to start the homeless ministry. And they just made an announcement after church saying, uh, if anybody would like to help, you know, come upstairs. So I did. And uh, initially it was just making lunches and that kind of thing. And eventually she moved on to the seminary and uh, I became the director. Awesome. So you you found your opportunity through church. Ellie yeah. found her opportunity with the Heritage Home by being a patient. Art, how did you get started with the cars? Like, how did you ever find that? Well, I, the, I've been blessed with fabulous mechanical skills because having the opportunity to grow up in a family-owned business. Um, basically, the main part of the business was tractor trailer truck repair, but we did construction equipment, farm equipment, and even cars and light trucks. So at six years old, I started hanging around with dad and because he owned the business, we could legally do that. I started out by, you know, handing him tools or chasing tools for him, washing parts, uh, sweeping floors at 10 years old. I was helping oh. assemble diesel engines. So all that experience 
has blessed me with fabulous mechanical experiences. And uh, you know, some people say, well, don't you think you've lost out on a childhood? And I do not. I mean, I still got to be a kid and play, but all the time I spent working there, I just learned so much and so many techniques and ways of doing things. And to me, that's fun. But I decided after high school that staying in that career might not be a good idea because it was changing to a lot more electronics, things that were going to be inaccessible. So I didn't follow that as a lifetime career, but I, it's a hobby. I love working with my hands, tools, and my mind. Awesome. So uh, let's, let's move on to Ellie and we'll start this, this round of questions. Um, so Ellie, what kind of reactions have you gotten from staff or other volunteers? You know, so often people see us as the ones who need the help and not the helpers. So could you um, enlighten us about your experience? Well, sure. Um, actually, there haven't been any real disappointments as far as that goes. Um, the two areas that I volunteered in that were not uh, blindness or disability related were the heritage and also the Engl- English as a second language. The, uh, I'll go into the English as a second language because it it conversely the people that I was helping were thrilled to be helped. And it was completely the opposite of, as to what you might think. Um, they were just really eager to learn and they were uh, very excited to be here. And uh, it was very enlightening for me as well as for them. So I really didn't experience any type of prejudice uh, from people that I was helping. And also in the heritage place, uh, there really wasn't enough time to worry about whether I was doing the right thing or not doing the right thing because I was providing music, which was totally straightforward. Okay. Angela, how have the staff at the church or other volunteers reacted to your vision loss and your abilities? Well, um, initially, uh, Diana was was glad to have the help, and I actually recruited another guy that sat next to me in the pew that was blind, and he was kind of hesitant. And I I got him going up with me. Come on, you can do this. He said, Yeah, I used to work at a store or whatever. I said, Great. So I actually got him making the sandwiches. I kind of did a Tom Sawyer, and uh, he helped for years. Um. And there, there really wasn't any, Diana didn't care at all that we were blind. Um, you know, we just started helping and, and doing stuff. And eventually uh, we branched out past just handing out brown bag lunches out in Oakland. I just made them. I, I kind of flunked distribution. That's a crazy story I won't get into, but. Uh, I was running after her carrying these picnic baskets loaded with stuff and bottles of water and a backpack and using my white cane. That doesn't work very well. And she was, you know, running through Oakland and I was trying to keep up with her. So I I didn't (laughs) actually distribute the lunches. That didn't work out. But um, later we added a um, clothing and toiletry part of the distribution you know we'd set up in the auditorium above the church 
and people would come for um, clothing and, you know, personal items and all that. And I, I really got into that more. Um, she had me go pick up some things for the ministry. And eventually, when she got accepted into the deaconess program, she was waiting to see who would take over. And lo and behold, the last day she was there, I was there with her in the chapel. So she said a few prayers and I was it. And the church never, nice. never objected to me doing anything. Of course, I had a trailblazer ahead of me. Sherry Crum was, was running the blind ministry. So they weren't Excellent. really, it wasn't a problem that another blind person was running a ministry. It's like I was another one. So I guess Excellent. that helped. Thank you. All right, Art, what about you? What do these other mechanics say about a blind mechanic come to supposedly help out? Well, yes, you're right. There was some <laughs> question, uh, you know, for example, a few of them were afraid of me being in a you know, garage shop environment, which, yes, there is a lot of uh, uh, dangers and risks. However, OSHA believes you should keep things like aisleways clear and not leave things where people are going to trip. So I helped enforce that um, you know, with them. But for example, with the, the Antique Motor Coach Association of Pennsylvania guys, um, I actually met their president through my day job and he started bringing me around, but they still were a bit hesitant. And after being there a few weeks and noticing that their 1947 GMC bus wouldn't stay running, uh, they finally let me get into it and make some adjustments. And after it ran properly, for those guys, it was no problem. Art wants to do it, let them do it. Uh, regarding the trolley museum, some of the members, a few members there had heard about me through the bus group. But um, luckily, the head of maintenance was very open-minded. And I talked to him after volunteering for a few weeks because we got pretty comfortable talking to each other. I said, you know, doesn't my blindness scare you? And he says, any volunteer that comes in here, we really know nothing about them when they first start. Do they really know what a screwdriver is or what a hammer is or how to use the hand tools properly? So he says, everybody, we have to learn about them. So he says, you know, why would you step up and say, hey, I want to volunteer. I can do this if you couldn't. So that works out for me. Great. Okay, Ellie, how about you tell us about... Any challenges that you've had to face to be able to volunteer with regards to maybe transportation or inaccessible uh, printed materials or maybe it's adapting a certain process or anything like that? Okay, well, um, there haven't been the usual uh, impediments that you would think. Um, But basically, the first volunteer job I had, which I keep going back to, but... uh, volunteering with the ESL, uh, I wasn't sure how I was actually going to teach these people uh, English because they knew next to no English. And they solved that by bringing storybooks. And we learned how to do it together. And uh, and it was interesting through reading children's stories, uh, I was able to really effectively help them. Um, as far as materials accessible or inaccessible uh they were the ones that read the stories to me and i would then correct you know uh any if they mispronounced or any they needed any meaning or anything like that 
Um, but as far as the, um, the usual impediments, I really didn't have any, you know, because uh, the two volunteer jobs I haven't mentioned were within the disability community. Uh, so there really weren't. And uh, playing music, I had my own keyboard, so I was in good shape. Angela, the, what kind of challenges have you faced in that uh, director's role? Well, I wanted to add something. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I ended up getting help in my ministry from other people with disabilities. I have several people that are helping me that are low vision or blind. I have another part, well, and one that's blind and deaf, another person that is deaf. And they are very happy to be accepted as volunteers. So the fact that I'm doing it is bringing other people into it. And they, they're the most, well, and there's another blind one, come to think of it. <laughs> but they see that I'm there, so they come and they volunteer. But plus I have plenty of people that are, quotes, not disabled. Everybody's disabled in one way or the other. Let's, let's face it. But small joke. But um, so that, that makes it kind of interesting. Um, hurdles. Um, I kind of, I used to teach school, so I kind of go into my teacher mode when I'm running things and you go here and this person does this. And if they get hesitant, I just start doing it. You know, they don't want to unload the closet and look at all the clothes. I just start grabbing everything and tossing it out of the closet. And then they're like, wow, she's doing it. I guess we can do it. And, uh, you know, I tell them, you do this, you do that. I have all the duties categorized and, and broken up. And um, I run a well-oiled machine when we do the distributions. And then uh, shopping, I go do it. Um, I go to the stores and get people to assist me in the store. Sometimes they don't want to, but I'm persistent. I order things, um, mail order when I can. Uh, I used to have people go pick things up in the car, but that's kind of hard to do. You know, people say, oh, yeah, I'll go pick up all those diapers or whatever. But then later, nobody wants to get them. So, but eventually you'll find other people. Um, you, you just have to, you know, a lot of times people that initially come to me as clients end up being my volunteers and some of my best people that are helping with the ministry so a lot of times those people would join up and uh, paperwork would be a problem of course and trying to you know fill out forms and get reimbursed for things and all that and I there's a lady in the church that came to volunteer and I said oh I could really use help with this so she fills out deposit slips and reads the tiny re cash register receipts and circles the stuff and that kind of thing. So you, you kind of have to find somebody as a reader or somebody that can tackle those things. And thank God for voiceover and things like JAWS. Um, I can handle the, the emailing and that kind of thing fairly well. I used to type up my own grant applications, but now my computer's kind of gone by the wayside, but I can um, still get things done with, with the cooperation of my pastor who ends Excellent. up doing the other things <laughs> as far as the grants. So it works out. 
Okay, thanks. All right, Art, what about you? What challenges have you faced? I mean, well, um, for me, one of the biggest things was trans. It has been transportation initially, but luckily, both museums, um, they the members became my friends, and they also appreciated what I could do for them. So many of them give me rides. When I first started going to the Trolley Museum, it was two hours each way access transfer trip. And I had to be out of there by 5 p.m. because that was the last time I could get a Washington Rides ride out of the museum. Um, now that my friends give me rides, my Saturday is the museum. Uh, in short, I leave about 6.30 a.m., have breakfast with the track crew, the guys that keep the tracks in shape. I work in the shop doing my restoration maintenance work, then uh, hang out with my friends, go out for dinner. And then after dinner, we either maybe come back and do more work or play with mm -hmm. the streetcars or hang out and just have a good time because they're my friends. And I get home between 10 p.m. and midnight. But um, the, so the, but one of the other challenges can be when manuals and documentation exists, of course, I don't have access to it, but Luckily, my friends slash the volunteers are willing to read information to me, explain things to me. But the other side of the coin is when you're dealing with antique streetcars, sometimes there is nothing. So you have to just um, take the thing apart carefully, figure it out and clean it and put it back together and get it working again. But that you know, helps with the, you know, I really do think with the gifts of my mechanical skills and the blindest techniques and abilities that I have. Some of the members think, oh, it's amazing what you do. And I said, well, you know, it's really, thank goodness, to proper training and techniques and experience. Excellent. All right. Ellen. Do it for Ellen or Ellie. Uh, either one. <laughs> it's okay. A little late to ask, right? No, okay. that's no problem. Never too late. <laughs> so um, the next question. Um, what have you gotten out of volunteering? Why do you do it? Well, the reason I've done it, uh, you know, the, the first uh, or the most recent thing I did is uh, to entertain for the uh, nursing home. And I, you know, in and of itself, that brings joy just by what it is. Uh, you feed off the audience, the audience feeds off you. Uh, you bring an awful lot of satisfaction to those people who this might be the a highlight of their day. And, uh, you know, and also keeping score at bingo, even though you think that may not be much of anything, um, you're able to show people what you can do there. And of course, I did that with a, a Braille note. So that wasn't real hard. Uh, I needed help. Some Somebody, you know, whispered in my ear and said, you know, uh, this one won and, and whatever. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure how I did that, but uh, going back to uh, volunteering and why I do it, um, it gives you an awful lot of satisfaction. It empowers you uh, to be able to help others and their reaction then feeds into the positivity. So that would be what I would say about that. Um, there really probably isn't much more to add, but uh, you you do it because basically it's it reinforces your own self worth, and you get a great degree of self empowerment out of it. Excellent, Angela. What about you? Why or what do you get out of volunteering? 
Um, I'm ignoring a phone call. I tried to put do not disturb on here, but uh, you're still here, so that's good. Um, <laughs> what do you get out of volunteering? Yes. Um, I get, well, when I initially started doing it, I wanted to be part of the, the church, you know, and, and do something other than just sit in the pew. And I, I, um, started that way plus i wanted to do something for the community and i thought well this is good we're going to be providing lunch to people out that that are hungry um you know later we were providing clothes and and necessities to people that needed them that were hard on their luck also those people came for the for the the fellowship in the community they would come and there's there's people that have come for for years just because they like it at our church you know and they like to sit around and talk and oh i like this place i like this church and you talk to them and you get to know them and so i kind of see it as a a mission to help people which i wanted to do and it was something for me to to be involved so that gives me fulfillment i won't lie about that and i i you know i feel like i'm an important part of the church and and i am to a certain extent a lot of people are active at our church there's people doing all kinds of stuff so i just i just fit in and i'm one of the crowd so it it gives me a a sense of belonging but it it also gives me a, a mission to uh show show love to all those people and and help them out and show them what being um a christian is all about that's pretty powerful that's pretty powerful thank you art what do you get out of volunteering well as i said before it's a way i can give to others but really for me this is fun my saturdays that's my fun i get to work with tools my hands my mind putting my mechanical skills to use, but the members down there, they're my friends. You know, we keep in touch with each other and you catch up with each other on how your week's been going and um, you work together, but it's just uh, great. I mean, I, it feels nice to get compliments from the folks who operate the streetcars that, boy, since you've joined, you know, we have less air leaks or these things work better. And it makes me feel good, but I, I just really, it's the fact of doing my mechanical thing and hanging out with my friends is why the Tri Museum has become such a big thing for me and actually I'm running for the board this year. Well, good luck. I dare say that all of you are an excellent um, example for <clears throat> the blind community and also you're an example to the people in the community. Um, about blind people. So thank you. Um, We're going to have one more question and then we will open it up for questions from the audience. And the last question is uh, just Ellie, what advice would you give um, to, to our audience about volunteering if they're thinking about it um, or just advice on why you should do it? Um, Parting words. Okay. Well, um, I like this question. I would say really discover what your passion is, what you're passionate about, something that you absolutely love to do. Uh, 
you know, say, for example, you love to read and you love to discuss books. Well, you might want to volunteer at the library, uh, you know, and that would be very fulfilling for you. And um, I just really enjoyed thinking about this one. So if you are doing something that you have a major passion for, you can translate that so easily into giving positivity to other people and making them enthusiastic about what you're enthusiastic about. So that's what I would say. And uh, where that can work to your benefit is then you may have an employment opportunity come along. And can you imagine you would be an off the charts interviewee because you would be as enthusiastic about what you had been doing uh, and it would make a big difference. Thank you. Angela, what advice can you offer to others about the feasibility of volunteering? Well, I would say if you can find somewhere to volunteer, do it. Your blindness will not hold you back generally. I know sometimes people look at us and it's like, how can they do anything? But my my one lead, as I said, I, I went to an ACB convention that was in Pittsburgh because a different pastor at another church I was going to knew my eyesight wasn't the greatest, but I was still seeing better then and said, hey, um, I saw this in the newspaper, you know, why don't you? And I was so happy that I did that because that's how I got to know people in the blind community first. And then later, of course, I got involved with, with PCB and GCTV. Um, now, what was the rest of the question? I'm losing my train of thought. Yeah. Too. <laughs> it was just what, would, what advice would you give about the feasibility of being able to Feasibility, volunteer? right. No, it's, it's very feasible. Um, I always was drawn to, I loved church since I can remember. I loved doing things at church. And so when I finally got to a place where I could do something, you know, I, I, I did it. I mean, it isn't always exclusive. I know it can be a downer. The, the church I attended before I went to the Lutheran church, they didn't really let me do that much of anything. They tried to let me teach a little uh, Sunday school, but that didn't work out. I had like the eighth and ninth graders and that's, that's not a good place to start. The little kids are a lot easier, but um, they, they were kind of more incredulous and, you know, it was one of those things where certain people did things and there was the in crowd and the crowd that wasn't in, and it didn't really have anything to do with me being blind. It's just, that's kind of the way it was, but, you know, keep, keep your ears open for, like I said, I just happened to be sitting in church and they're like, well, you know, we're going to go upstairs and make these lunches and anybody want to come and help? And up I went. And then that's how this whole thing started. And um, once you start doing it, I mean, there will be people that will, you know, see what you can do and, and let you do it. Don't don't see your blindness as I, I don't see it any different than, you know, having brown hair or blue eyes or you know whatever it's it's not really an impediment at all and it can be a blessing because as i said other people ended up joining me in the ministry because they said hey if she can do it i can do it and i can come too 
and even volunteers that, you know, can I come and help? Oh, I'll come and help you. And then they ended up becoming involved and some of them even joined, then some, several of them joined the church and it, it just all took off from there. So don't minimize your skills at all. You, you can, you. you can do it. Thank you, Angela. Art, uh, what would you say to folks um, who are sitting at home all day and maybe are questioning their value? Um, what is the feasibility of being able to, to go out and volunteer? Well, definitely to strongly agree with one of the points that Ellen said, you know, do something you enjoy or you're very interested in or you want to learn about. Uh, but also, too, uh, one of my things would be the be willing to talk to slash educate other people about blindness and the proper way of doing things as a blind individual. Also, don't be afraid to try it and take pride in what you do when you volunteer. So short, short and concise to the point, I thought. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you all. Um, at this point, I think we'd like to open it for questions. And if you guys are, are willing to answer questions or anyone who also wants to maybe tell um, just a little one minute about their volunteer experience. Linda Davis has a raised hand, I'm told. The, the, the one thing I... Um had a hard time with when I first wanted to do any volunteering was confidence. How do you gain the confidence to do it? Um, I, I did volunteer um, at my church, but before that, when my children were in school, I was the secretary of the PTO, the PTA, and I was a little nervous about it, but I did it. Does anyone have any thoughts to bounce back to Linda. How did you get over the the jitters, Linda? Well, I just, I don't know. I just, I kept going to the meetings and when they wanted someone to become secretary, I just thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And then I do volunteer. I'm a lion. And so I do help with the Lions Club. Although, I have to say, they're not, they uh, are a little more hesitant about me doing different things. I don't think they feel that, and it's hard to, for me to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not an, as outgoing as I wish I were in that, like, we were, we were getting food boxes together um, for Easter and, and uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving, and they said to me, okay, well, here, we'll, we'll give you this to do, and they, they wouldn't let me just walk around and help the way the others were doing it, and I had a hard time with that. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like some education needed to be happening there with the Lions. Well, that, but also for me, it's a confidence thing, and I don't know how to get past it. You should have attended the advocacy workshop this morning. Well, I was there for part for okay. Yeah, so so we talked about you know getting self confidence and feeling empowered, and um, that that uh, presentation will be archived so folks can listen to that, and <clears throat> there'll be more of those coming up um, and opportunities to 
to talk with others and really figure out how we gain more self-confidence in those kinds of situations. Thank you for sharing that, Linda. We do yes. have a hand raised, um, area code 724 with the last three digits of 507. I used to read to children. And I loved doing it, and then when I would show my Braille watch, they thought that was the neatest thing in the world. And they used to tell their parents they thought it was magic because it opened all by itself. But one <laughs> of the things that I would like to do, when I started working as a compere to try and work with the mentally ill, because there's mental illness on my father's side of the family. How do I get involved with that? You're, are you in Butler County? What county are you in? Yes, I'm in Butler, Pennsylvania. Um, there's probably a United Way in that area that you could call and find mm. out about volunteer opportunities. Uh, dial 211. 211. 211. Yep. Oh, thank you. Sure. Hey, Sue, this is Rose. Can I say one quick thing? Absolutely. Cool. So October's point about reading to kids made me think of, I did a lot of volunteering in college. Um, and one of the things that I found to be the most successful um, besides doing like service trips and everything, um, I did for about two years, I volunteered at a newspaper club for at a school, like an after school program. And I found, I mean, beyond getting clearances and everything, obviously nowadays you probably need to get a clearance before you're going to be working with kids. But I found that to be completely accessible because the kids were, you know, either mostly going through steps, handwriting, then using their computers. But if there were questions, you know, I was able to help them brainstorm because I was an English major, but then like questions and spelling or looking things up or reading, you know, they had to do it anyway. And so I think opportunities like that, whether it's in, a, you know, reading to kids or finding a club that you could help them with, because oftentimes when they're, if they read aloud anyway, like you're not the only one, you know, some of my club uh, teammates were also having the kids read aloud because when they're reading aloud, they're catching their own mistakes going, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Um, so there's kind of aspects like that where, you know, it's automatically accessible and you might not need to do anything extra. Um, so just wanted to throw that in there as well. Thank you, Rose. Sure. I see we have another hand raised. Yes, John Dunn. First of all, I want to say to all, you know, the three of you that uh, it's so great that you guys do stuff outside of the blind community is, and especially Myself, I do as well. I'm an assistant scoutmaster and a scout troop, and I have been since 1993 when I turned 18. And I remember at the time I was a boy in the troop, and I was about to turn 18. The scoutmaster at that time came to me and said, hey, you know, you're turning 18, and I want you to be an assistant scoutmaster. It's all about giving back like others have given for you. And uh, I said, well, hey, if you don't have a problem with my blindness, um, you know, I will gladly do it. He's like, you have gone through the troop as a boy, you can be an adult too. I said, okay, well, if you're willing to accept me, then I'm willing to do it and have done it ever since. And I mean, for me, it's a great joy because I feel it's giving back to people like people have done for me. And I mean, the boys accept me for who I am. They actually even ask me questions. Uh, and as was talked about on the advocacy thing this morning, uh, you know, I have no problem talking to them about because I'd rather them learn and understand. And, you know, they know how to help when I do need help. And they know that, you know, if I don't need help, that I'm fine and they, they don't bother. So, you know, it's just just great. And I think it's great that, uh, you know, there are others out there trying to do things and make a difference in the community 
that they live in and be, you know make people aware of who we are and what what we do so thank you so much for what you guys do and thank you don you're welcome and we're close to our wrap-up time so i just wanted to say thank you to angela ellie and art you guys um did a fabulous job and i appreciate um you're joining us um and now uh, we're going to have a commercial and then we're going to move into our door prizes Envision America works with pharmacies in Pennsylvania and surrounding states to provide accessible prescription labels upon request. These labels include script talk talking labels, large print labels, dual language translation labels, braille labels, and controlled substance safety labels. To find a participating pharmacy near you and to learn more, call us at 1-800-890-1180 or visit www.envisionamerica.com. Will, are you there? I am. Okay. Is that your intro? Thanks. Hey, welcome back <laughs> to Door Prize. <laughs> oh, sorry. Will Grignon, the king of the door prizes. There you go. All right. Is Let's here. Uh, give away some cash and other goodies. Now, remember, um, if you're present, raise your hand and you you are confirmed as a winner. If I, we don't hear, hear from you right now, you'll have 15 minutes. 1515 to call me or text me at 727-564-9759 or email me at wgrignon13 at gmail.com. All right, let's try to give away this prize. We've tried several times and nobody's um, contacted me. So it's a $10 cash prize donated by Keystone. The number is 58, and and I'm randomizing these numbers, so they're completely random. The name is Joseph Sakura. Joe, are you present? Raise your hand. I'd be surprised if he's not. It doesn't look like he is. All right, Joe. 727-564-9759 or WGRIGNON13 at gmail.com. We use the registration list and a random number generator online. This is a $15 Burger King gift card donated by Philadelphia Regional. The number is 9797. Shirley Brotman, are you in the house? That's another Philadelphian. She would be a phone number. No hands raised. No hands raised. Sorry. All right, Shirley, 15 (laughs) minutes. Call me, text me, email me. Send a pigeon, a fast pigeon. <laughs> Our next prize is another $10 cash award donated by Pagdas. The number is 5454. Lynn Shields, are you in the house? Yes. She has All raised right. her hand. We have confirmed Yay. you as a winner. Congratulations. We have another $10 cash prize. Oh, and Shirley's calling me in. Okay, that's good. We have a $10 <laughs> cash prize donated by the Lehigh Valley chapter. The number is 22. Michael Zakin, are you in the house? Well, I'm not seeing any hands popping up. <laughs> All right, Michael, you have 15 minutes to contact me, 727-564-9759. We have another $15 Burger King 
certificate donated by Philadelphia Regional. The number is 1414. Andrea Lemoy. Is that how you pronounce it? Lemoyne. Lemoyne. She is, she is from Lamp, Philadelphia. Oh. I saw her here yesterday. I haven't seen her here today. Andrea. And I do not see a hand coming up still. So. All right, Andrea, 727-564-9759. Text or call. Remember, any prize that isn't claimed goes back into the hopper. All right. We have another. We have a $10 cash prize donated by Keystone. The number is 60. I know he's probably here. Donald Dunn, are you still in the house? <laughs> Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're sure. There it is. There he is. Right. Raise his hand. You're a proud winner of $10. We now have a $25 Amazon gift card donated by Golden Triangle. Thank you very much. The number is 38. Okay. Well, remember, this is completely random. Marianne Goodnon, are you in the house? (laughs) (laughs) I am. All right. I'll mark you down as president. Congratulations. She did not raise her hand. Hey, I, I did the. <laughs> hey. We have a twenty dollar gift, um, twenty dollar right. cash prize donated by our Washington chapter. Thank you. The number is one zero four. Gail Menator. I think that's her name. Menator. Gail, are you in the house? Raise your hand. If not, you have fifteen minutes. Seven two seven five six four nine seven five nine. Anybody know Gail? Give her a call. So she give me a call. No right. hands. Our last one for this um, intrepid episode. We have a $15 Starbucks gift card donated by PCB. The number is 88. The name winner, Hazel Clark. Hazel, are you in the house? A couple of minutes ago, I did not see that name, and no hands are popping up. Okay, Hazel. All you rest of you who haven't been uh, raising your hands, 727-564-9759 or WGRIGNON13 at gmail.com. Back to you, sir. Thank you, Will. All right, we've got another sponsor commercial. The Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children provides superior educational opportunities for students with visual impairments, including those with severe multiple disabilities. Our unique school is tailored for children who require distinct educational and supportive services to realize their full potential. Comprehensive outreach programs provide vital services to youth throughout Pennsylvania. For more information, visit www.wpsbc.org or contact the school at 412-621-0100. 